What's up, all of our liberty-loving friends? This is Liberty at Night with Nate and Charlie on the Free Talk Live Network. Right now, you're just getting me. Charlie's going to be here in the next segment, along with some other guests. We're going to be talking about capitalism. We're going to be talking about some news of the day items, what's going on with Ukraine, uh, what's going on with climate change. I think we're all about to be done, from what I can tell. Uh, We'll be talking about capitalism a little bit with the one and only Steve Forbes. We'll also be having Mr. Spike Cohen come on the show and a couple other interviews as well. We've got some movie recap and reviews uh, from Mission Impossible and Sound of Freedom and then our take on some of the speeches that we saw while we were at Freedom Fest. So if this is your first time listening, and by the way, my name is Nate Thurston. Charlie and I, the co-host, have been friends for about 20 years now, and we have a podcast together that's called Good Morning Liberty, which you can find on your favorite podcast app, or you can type in BernieLies.com on your browser. We're happy to be joining you and hanging out with you tonight. I want to tell you that this hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it's undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible, and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their chain locks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. And a big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash-Dash.org. All right, y'all. Let's get into a few of the uh, topics of the day. The first thing I want to talk about is actually going to be Ukraine and this whole grain fiasco that we might be a about to get ourselves into. Now, you might remember when the Ukraine war first started, when Russia first invaded, uh, we had some issues there because it turns out we get a lot of grain from Ukraine. Prices spiked up quite a bit. This also led to some inflation around the world. This, Yes, I know, I know that Biden, the Biden administration likes to blame the inflation on Putin and then likes to take credit for the fact that the inflation rate has come down. Prices are still going up, by the way. The inflation rate has come down. Prices are increasing slower than they were beforehand, but they are still increasing. Just in case I need to correct that for anyone, Hakeem Jeffries, I don't know if anyone else needs any corrections out there. Uh, But this, this could be an issue. This could lead to a little bit more inflation. We could be getting our second wave of the inflation. You know, in the 70s, this came in three uh, really major waves. The we could just be through the first one. I'm I'm not just making that prediction right now or anything, but just getting one wave and then everything's fine. I think that's going to be pretty tough, especially after the economy destroying actions that took place in 2020 and in 2021. To think that we're not going to go through a major recession after that uh, would be laughable in my opinion, to think that we can somehow squeak by, print all of that money, have all of this inflation, and not have any problems, more problems on the back end. 
Now, from CNN here, they say Vladimir Putin is reminding the world that he has the capacity to apply pain far beyond the torment he's inflicting on Ukraine. Russia's suspension of a deal allowing the export of Ukrainian grain from a region fabled as the world's breadbasket threatens to cause severe food shortages in Africa and send prices spiraling in supermarkets in the developed world. In the U.S., it represents a risk, a political risk, for Joseph Biden, who is embarking on this re-election campaign. Is he, though? Is he embarking on this re-election campaign, or is he just nibbling on small children around the world? I don't know which one it is. And Joe Biden can hardly afford a rebound of the high inflation that hounded U.S. consumers at its peak Last year, 9.1% was the peak, although we all know it was much higher than that. Uh, Some estimates at that time were putting it up around 18, about double. So uh, what have we actually gone up throughout Biden's tenure and, yes, throughout some of Trump's? What have we actually lost in the value of our currency? The official numbers are around the 17% as the inflation that we've had. The unofficial numbers, if you use the old way of calculating inflation, well, that's going to put it easily up in the 20s of percents. Um, we'll just use a smaller one. That sounds way better. That, that's less depressing, I guess. I highlighted something in this article about the Ukraine grain and the fact that this could cause severe food shortages in Africa. I want people to remember when they are talking about the war in Ukraine and how important it is that we protect Ukraine's perfect democracy, their uncorruptible, perfect democratic country that they have over there in Ukraine, uh, that millions of people around the world could die because of this. Now, does that make it Ukraine's fault? No, it's it's, Russia are the ones who invaded. I get it. But there are trade-offs here. And the poor, starving people in Africa would like a word with you in your Ukraine flag in your bio, okay, or in your username on Twitter. Maybe y'all should talk about it, and you should look that person in the eye and tell them that it's worth them starving to death so you can feel good about the Ukraine flag in your profile name. I bet that's not what you would tell them. Maybe that would change the way you think about things a little bit. I don't know. All right, in other news... A court has put an order blocking the Biden administration from pressing for social media content moderation on hold. Okay, once again, so we we heard about this. Uh, we heard about this case. I believe it was Missouri versus Biden, and they were told that they could no longer talk to these companies. They had to put that on hold while this case was going through. It was too dangerous for the First Amendment. Well, now the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit has put a temporary hold on that order that was blocking federal officials from pressuring social media companies to suppress certain accounts, posts, and different types of information. Quote, a temporary administrative stay is granted until further orders of the court, states the Fifth Circuit Court's order. It deferred ruling on the Biden administration's motion for a stay pending appeal uh, to the Oral Argument Merits Panel, which receives this case. The the court is also expediting the case to the next available oral argument slot, so they do want this to happen as soon as possible. Uh, Didn't elaborate on its reasoning for issuing the temporary stay, 
Although we know people are probably pulling the strings in the background. Okay, we don't know that. We can speculate that that's what's going on. So I want to talk about what kind of First Amendment principles are at stake here. I know that they didn't sign a law, so Congress made no law uh, that was abridging our freedom of speech. But the government itself was still doing so, and they were still doing it with an implied threat of retaliation if you did not do what they wanted. In a previous case, Judge Richard Posner, uh, which was uh, a ruling in Backpage.com versus Dart, wrote that a public official who threatens to employ coercive state power to stifle protective speech violates a plaintiff's First Amendment rights regardless of whether the threatened punishment comes in the form of the use or misuse of the defendant's direct regulatory or decision-making authority or in some less direct form. We know that they've already made direct threats and they pulled Zuckerberg and the other leaders out there in front of Congress. We got the moments with AOC, Grill and Zuckerberg. They're all talking about breaking up their companies, using antitrust, taking away Section 230, which would essentially destroy their businesses. And if it were was people from the left talking about that, it was because they didn't censor enough speech. Because they allowed this fake thing of Russian disinformation uh, to sway the 2016 election. We literally had hearings on things that were based on lies. In fact, we probably have a lot of hearings on things that are based on lies. I think we know that. Okay, so we know that they make these either explicit or implicit threats that they're going to hurt the companies if they don't do a better job policing information. And then they come to them later on and they say, oh, here's things that we have deemed to find dangerous. You see, because these companies, they don't want to get in trouble. So they probably said, hey, why don't you let us know what you think we should do? And so the, the government lets them know what they think they should do. And the corporations do it because the government are the ones with the gun. They are the ones that can shut them down. You might fault the people who run these companies for doing so. You might disagree with them ideologically, like a lot of us do. But at the end of the day, they're being threatened by the government. And that's the main reason that they did this. Some other reasons include advertising dollars, things like this. Um, In the lower court's ruling, Judge Terry Dowdy banned all Department of Justice and FBI employees plus many federal public health officials from, quote, meeting with social media companies for the purpose of urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content, and specifically flagging content or posts on social media platforms and or forwarding such to social media companies, urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner for removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of the content containing protected free speech. I think that's a pretty good ruling. You know who else should think that's a pretty good ruling? Democrats. Democrats should think that this is a pretty good ruling. You know why? Because what if Donald Trump wins re-election? He was just the president not that long ago. What if he wins election again? Is that considered the re-election? I don't know. I don't know what the rules are on that. What if he won again? What if DeSantis were the president? What if someone who's even worse than those people is the president in the 2028 elections, okay, they need to ask themselves if they want a Trump White House doing the same thing. 
Do you want RFK deciding what speech can be censored? And that's the problem with most political ideologies. They don't account for what would happen when your guy is no longer in power. Talked to a lot of people last week while we were at Freedom Fest that had all the right ways to do things as long as people that agreed with them stayed in control of the agencies and of those power structures. Libertarians have that same problem sometimes, but at least our plans usually include reducing the power structures those other guys will use in the future. And yes, they're going to build them back up, and then eventually you have to take them back down, but you're not always going to be in control. The only way you would be able to is if you had an actual change in the population, which is what most of us uh, should be working towards anyway, because that is how you truly change things. That is how you truly change the society. Listen, politicians are for sale. And the real thing that they're for sale on is your vote, because if they don't get enough votes, then they won't be in office anymore. And so, yeah, people can give them money. That's fine. But if no one votes for them, then what are they going to do? How do they get your vote? Well, by promising you that they're going to do things that you like. Do they actually have principles? Eh, Some of them, a few of them, a lot of them are just doing what they can to get elected. And so as Milton Friedman would say, you don't need to try to put the right people in office. Okay, You need to make it so the incentive structure were so that it were politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing. How is it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing? Because the people have changed, because the people want liberty, and the people want freedom, and the people can see through all of the BS that the politicians are spinning on a daily basis. And if the politicians don't get out there and do what they're supposed to do, which is next to nothing, by the way, next to nothing, their main job at this point is taking away some of their own powers, which is very difficult. Um, But if they don't get out there and do that, then they're not going to stay in business anymore. They're going to lose their jobs. And then we, the people, are going to put someone else in there who's actually going to do those things. That's a very tall order because that means that instead of focusing on getting the right person elected, it means that we are going to have to focus on changing ourselves and our friends and the people around us, our family, uh, so that the people change. And it doesn't matter who's running for office. The people are going to, those people in power are going to do what we want them to do or they'll lose their job. It's all about incentives. I want to go through a couple other things that are happening in the news right now. Before we get on to, once again, I will, uh, we got an interview with Steve Forbes. We'll be talking a lot about capitalism and we'll, we'll maybe talk about some evil billionaires too at some point in time. We're going to talk with Spike Cohen, who was the uh, candidate, the vice presidential candidate uh, for the Libertarian Party in the last election cycle. And maybe we'll have a couple other interviews that we're going to have tonight as well. I'll let you know when they're coming up. I was looking at the New York Times today to see what was going on, see what we could be worried about, see what's going to destroy us. Once again, it's climate change. Climate change is taking the cake right now. We got the world sweltering in record-breaking heat. We got 18 days of extreme heat in Phoenix with no end in sight. You might as well move right now. It's never going to stop. Even China is worried about their severe heat, or at least John Kerry is worried about severe heat in China. 
And of course, you can look at the forecast for the heat index across the United States. By the way, I'm talking and I'm, I'm, I've got a video going along with me or I've got slides, elements going along with me. And if you want to watch that, once again, we got a daily podcast called Good Morning Liberty and you can find on your favorite podcast app. You can go to BernieLies.com on your browser and bring that up. And if you want to watch this current video of me going through things, it's going to be on the YouTube channel. I love how we're talking a whole lot about heat indexes these days, which is something we've been measuring for like roughly 40 years. And the calculations that go into the heat index, I know it has a lot to do with humidity, but there's other ways that they find the heat index number, which is how it affects you. They make assumptions about the surface area of people's bodies and how the heat and the humidity are affecting how much they are sweating, uh, which means you're making other assumptions about the uh, the salt and moisture makeup in their bodies. Uh, this Okay, I get it. We say the heat index, but now we're starting to use the heat index quite a bit, and it kind of seems like it's because it's a higher number, and that's what people want to talk about. Speaking of things that people want to talk about, Ilhan Omar, God, you got to love community notes here on Twitter. Thank you, Elon, for pushing this community notes thing. Uh, it, it's so good. She says, Ilhan Omar says, the earth just broke the record for the hottest day in 120,000 years. In fact, we broke it on three separate days. National Climate Emergency Now. She says, National Climate Emergency Now. I saw Nina Turner talking about a climate emergency. we got to declare a climate emergency. Isn't it weird how you predict that things are going to happen and then they get close and close to happening and then you have actual people in elected office in the U.S. House of Representatives calling for a climate emergency. What are we going to do with a climate emergency? We're going to spend a bunch of money. We're probably going to put some restrictions on people, maybe even some travel restrictions. And I swear to the good Lord that someday they're going to be controlling your thermostats. I know that that sounds crazy right now, but maybe keep yourself a nice uh, analog thermostat. Something not connected to the internet, okay? Something not connected to the internet. Keep it on hand and know how to install it. If you like your smart thermostat, you can keep your smart thermostat. But if you like your indoor temperature, I'm not sure you'll be able to keep your indoor temperature. So... I think we should all keep one, just, you know, keep one out in the garage in a drawer for when they decide to control the inside temperature of your home. Because it's coming. I know they already do it in some places, but they'll uh, they'll be doing it by force eventually. So she says this, that Earth just broke the record for the hottest day in 120,000 years. And of course, in my head, I think, well, Ilhan, we have only been accurately measuring temperatures since around 1880. Now, that is what pops up in my mind uh, immediately. So, I'll show you this one specific note that's on here. It says, the source for this claim appears to be the University of Maine Climate Reanalyzer, which has added a recent notice, making it clear that it should not be taken as official observation records. Uh, If we scroll down, which I didn't take the whole thing here, they also mentioned that it is... uh, Widely known by scientists that our accurate temperature measurements go back to 1880. The other things that they do is they they just make estimates. They just estimate what the temperature was. They don't know because they didn't have a Galdern thermometer out there and someone writing down what the temperature was. 
they will look at the rocks or they'll look at the dirt and they'll look at the makeup of it and they'll say, well, the, you know, it probably took around this much uh, for this much of this compound to be in this thing right there. And so uh, we think it's around this temperature and they write it down in something and then it becomes fact to some people. But if they're off by half a degree, then the record's not broken anymore, is it? And so that's why you can't take those things seriously. Some people will just use them so they can push national climate emergencies. They love doing this. Yesterday, they're even changing the names of things that already existed and adding the word climate change in it, like underground climate change is affecting the city of Chicago. That was an article from CNN. And essentially this phenomenon where all the buildings and the pavement and all of those, all the things connected to the ground and the subway and all that are changing the ground temperature and, and by effect shrinking and expanding the ground and, and it could be damaging some of the buildings. Um, this whole putting tons of buildings into the ground and then out on top of them by a hundred floors, this is kind of a new experiment as far as earth goes And if the ground is reacting to it because we've essentially put a bunch of heat rods down on the ground and things are changing, are we just going to call that underground climate change because we think that if we change our carbon emissions, uh, that's not going to happen anymore? You know how much things would need to change for the heat that is being transferred from the building down into the ground or down into the subway tube would need to change? Uh, Newsflash. The UN panel on climate change is not projecting that anything that we are talking about doing is going to be enough to change what's happening in Chicago, all right? From what I can tell, almost nothing that anyone is trying to do is going to change what's happening in Chicago. Okay, folks, when we come back, Charlie is going to be here for um, some great conversations uh, about about capitalism, about billionaires. You know what? I think I'm going to do that one. I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to do that one by myself. Uh, we'll have the Steve Forbes interview, uh, and then we'll we'll talk to Spike Cohen. And I want to talk about the Sound of Freedom and Mission Impossible, and which one you should go see. And so we'll be right back after the break. Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. In addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was the first crypto project to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Every month, 10% of the mining rewards go into a treasury. Anyone with one Dash to spend can put forward a proposal to the Dash masternodes to vote on. The masternodes vet the proposals and decide which ones move forward and are funded by the Treasury. In fact, that's exactly how we got this sponsorship. Nowadays, DAOs are plentiful, but Dash paved the way by doing it first, nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. All right, folks, we are back at Liberty at Night with Nate and Charlie on the Free Talk Live Network. 
Chuck's going to be here in the next segment. And this one, I wanted to go through uh, some some conversation about capitalism in this new study from the Rand Corporation that I've seen. Are one of our favorites, Robert Reich III, out there talking about and uh, how $50 trillion has been stolen from the working class people by the people in the top 10%, 5%, 1%, whichever one it is that they want the villain to be today. And so I want to go through that study and then um, at the end of this, before the end of this segment, we'll talk with Steve Forbes about what he's doing to increase people's knowledge about the the glory, the glory that is the free market and capitalism. So the first thing I want to do is talk about this study. And unfortunately, now I saw Robert Reich post something from it. And then I also saw Edward Snowden post something from it. Now that. Okay, it's a little bit disappointing for people who can be so logical and so principled to also think things that are uh, so dumb and not nuanced whatsoever and not look any further into what could be actually causing this data to look the way that it looks. Now, I'm first off not going to argue that people in the top 1% have made more money on a percentage basis uh, than they did in the past. Okay, let's just let's just get it out there in the open that that's what's happening, and that it is happening. The way that they characterize this, though, is nothing short of ridiculous. And we'll be talking about Time Magazine and their article on this, and then a little bit from the from the study. Why does this matter? Uh, it matters because this shapes the way people think about the top 1%, and I'm not here to protect the top 1%. I'm here to protect the rights of all people, even if you're very successful. I'm here to protect the property rights of all individuals, even and especially if you are very successful. And so the fact that you made more money or that you owned a company and that the price of it skyrocketed, great. I hope you provided value for society. And in fact, in a free market, that is how you get rich. You get rich because you provided value to society. Otherwise, people would not have turned over their money to you for whatever product you were selling. Or, in a lot of cases, of these rich people, uh, they turned over their money as an investment vehicle so they could make more money on their retirements. And you, essentially, were holding that money for them, represented in the value of your company because people were investing in it, which changed your net worth. Uh, because people were giving you money so you could keep pushing your company and in change, in return, uh, you gave them return on their investment. That's a good thing. That's how a lot of these people are very rich. And so let's go into this study. Once again, Edward Snowden says, our political system has calcified into a robbery contest. You got to read the study. All right, we're going to go through a little bit of this article, and then we'll go through some of the study as well. The top 1% of Americans have taken $50 trillion from the bottom 90%, and that has made the U.S. less secure. I want to tie all these things together, probably hurting our democracy. A staggering $50 trillion, that's how much the upward redistribution of income has cost American workers over the past several decades. So they're already classifying this as upward 
redistribution, meaning you made the money and it was taken from you and it was given to the people at the top. Because I think that's the only way these people see the world. They don't see it as people earn money and they make money. They see it as there is money and then it is just distributed by some form of power structure. But income, as Thomas Sowell would say, is not distributed. It is earned. Some income is distributed because the government takes it from you with a gun and then gives it to other people. That's distributed income. Now, what people earn at their jobs, that's what people get paid for production. All right, and there are more ways other than the government gun to change that. Going back to the article here, this is not some back-of-the-napkin approximation. According to the groundbreaking new working paper by Carter Price and Catherine Edwards of the Rand Corporation, had the more equitable income distributions of the three decades following World War II held steady, the annual income of Americans earning below the 90th percentile would have been $2.5 trillion higher in the year 2018 alone. That is an amount equal to nearly 12% of GDP, enough to more than double median income, enough to pay every single working American in the bottom nine deciles an additional $1,144 per month, every month, every single year. How did they come to these calculations? It doesn't matter. Let's talk more about it. Price and Edwards calculate that the cumulative tab over the four-decade-long experiment in radical inequality had grown to over $47 trillion from 1975 to 2018. At a recent pace of $2.5 trillion per year, the number we estimate crossed the $50 trillion mark by early 2020. That's $50 trillion that could have gone into the paychecks of working Americans had inequality held constant. $50 trillion that would have built a far larger and more prosperous economy. $50 trillion that would have enabled the vast majority of Americans to enter this pandemic far more healthy, resilient, and financially secure. The problem is, most of this is made up because they do describe how they get the numbers. And it's kind of shady. And they're just making a lot of stuff up. right? It's not a back of the napkin approximation. That's true. That's what they said. But the, the means of going about finding these numbers still not good. Now, I get it. A lot of people have some hatred and anger towards people at the top. I understand that. Well, I don't understand how you feel that way. I understand that you feel that way. And I'm sorry you feel that way. We try to fight against that on this show. I never hold the fact that people have more money or that they're making more money against them ever. It is not inherently a bad thing, and they are innocent until proven guilty. They probably acquired that money in a just manner, unless I know that they did not. But there are a lot of people who, just because people are making more money than they are, are upset. In fact, that's pretty common for human beings, and it has been for a long time. That's how we got stuff that happened in the early 1900s, and a lot of other things throughout entire human history. As the RAND report demonstrates, a rising tide most definitely did not lift all boats. It didn't even lift most of them, as nearly all of the benefits of growth these past 45 years were captured by those at the very top. Here's one mistake that they make that is a very common mistake that people make. The benefits of the growth these past 45 years were captured by those at the top. 
The way that they phrase that, it sounds like those at the very top have been the same group of people over the last 45 years. But that is not the case. Over the last 45 years, the people that are at the top, in the top 1% or whatever the percent is that people are upset at right now, change. They change constantly. They change daily. In fact, a lot of the people died over 45 years. Right. So what we're changing right now is we're going from talking about human beings, what happens when you are young and you move about through life and maybe you get an education in something specific, maybe you don't. And what happens as you get older, what happens with your income as you get older, typically you make more money. We'll talk more about that later. And instead, we're just talking about the group itself, the the quintile or the quartile or the decile, the 25%, the 50%, the 75 all of those, whichever one it is. And so we start talking about people in groups, but people aren't groups. People are in groups and they move through those groups and they remain people. And those groups also remain the same, but they have different people in them and they have different amounts of people in them determined by the amount of money those people are making. That's also very important for this conversation. Imagine how much safer, healthier, and empowered all American workers might be if that $50 trillion had been paid out in wages instead of being funneled into corporate profits and the offshore accounts of the super-rich. Imagine how much richer and more resilient the American people would be. Imagine how many more lives would have been saved had our people been more resilient. First off, you can't assume that everything's going to cost the same. If for some reason all of that money would have gone to the people in the bottom, what do people at the bottom who don't own businesses do with their money? They give it to people who own businesses. Because, but I don't know about you, but I don't make a darn thing at my house. But there are a lot of other people who make things. And basically all the money that I make that I don't save goes to other people who own businesses. And a lot of those people happen to be at the top. Okay, I'm not making an argument against people being paid more money. I'm not saying that it's pointless. Uh, It needs to be commiserate with the value of their work in society. uh, So we don't just have rapid inflation like what we've had over the last couple of years. Uh, But I'm I'm not against that. But you can't just assume that they just have more money and they'd be able to buy all of these things that we have right now and all the things we have right now would cost the same. That's one assumption that they're making in the study. I want to go through. Now, the RAM report brings the inequality price tag directly home by denominating it in dollars. Not just the aggregate $50 trillion figure, but they go to demographic detail. For example, are you a typical black man earning $35,000 a year? Well, you're being paid $26,000 a year less than you would have had income distributions held constant. Now imagine the type of hatred and anger and resentment this type of thing can bring someone to. We already know what telling people we live in a racist society and everything that's ever happened bad in your life is because of racism. Well, now we're also saying, are you a black man, a typical black man? Are you a basic black man uh, and you earn 35 grand a year? Well, because of these people stealing money from you, you would actually be making $61,000 a year right now. And magically, by the way, all the products would cost the same and you would just have all of that extra money. That's essentially what they're telling people. Are you a college-educated, prime-age, full-time worker earning 72 k 
uh, de- depending on inflation, this inequality is costing you anywhere from 50k to 63,000 per year. That's it. you're making 72 and you could be making 50k more than that, but because of inequality that rapidly developed for some reason starting in the year 1971, we'll talk about that later on, because of this inequality, you're now getting paid less money. This is designed for one purpose, one purpose only, to get everyone mad at a very, very small group of people. They can all team up, and they're all mad at this group of people. What are they going to do about it, though? They can't do anything about it. You know what they're going to do? They're going to get the government to do something about it. You know what the government's going to do about it? They're either going to succeed and destroy the world's economy, or they're going to fail and get really rich on their own still instead. So we either have to hope that they succeed in equitizing our income distribution, which would destroy everything. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I haven't been to Venezuela in a little while. I think we should go check it out, see how things are going. You know, uh, we should go check that out. So they could succeed in their quest, uh, or they could fail in that quest, but they succeed in their other, which is to just make a bunch of money for themselves. Selling you a false promise, which is what they're going to do. Let's go through some of these actual numbers. Um, if you were, uh, if you were a white woman, oh, screw, screw them. Let's talk about white men in 1975. Here's your earnings: uh, 38k in 2018. It's 44, and they're taking the price, consumption, expenditure that. I'll just say they're they're taking inflation into account. Um, it goes from thirty eight to forty four, and they're they're saying, they're telling you that you'd be making eighty three instead of forty four if not for all of this inequality. The problem is, like all studies, there are limitations. Here's another good graph. Once again, you can find this. You can go to uh, Good Morning Liberty's YouTube. Search Good Morning Liberty on there. You can go to BernieLies.com. And uh, you find our podcast, or you can uh, find our YouTube or TikTok or whatever, and you can watch this video once I get it uploaded. In 1975, the top 1% had 9% share of income, and now they have 22% share of the income. And the bottom 90% had 67%, and now they have 50 At one question, you should always ask, I'm not saying it's the case, but you should ask, what if the top 1% earned more of the share of the income from 1975 to 2018. Why should it stay the same? Wouldn't this change? And in fact, after you have a welfare state that pays people to not work, wouldn't this be the case anyway, that you would get a lower share of the national income distribution would go to people in the bottom 90%, at least in the bottom 50, or at least in the bottom 20 a much lower share. But that's not even the reasoning that I'm going to tell you about because there's much, much easier explanations for this. First off, some limitations on this study. Why is this important, by the way? We're going to talk about why it's important. This hatred for people who have more than you seriously has led to the worst things that have happened in human history. It's all been built out of envy. And the people in the government that were doing it, sure, they went to power. They wanted authority. They were authoritarians. 
But how did they get the people to go along with it? They were able to get the people to go along with it because the people were envious of their neighbors for having more than them. We've heard the stories, okay? And this is a very dangerous ideology, and it's not a moral ideology either, all right? Here's some limitations. Income from capital gains is only captured for the tax units that are above the 90th percentile of taxable income, meaning when we just looked at that chart that showed the bottom 90% and their share shrinking, it is important to note that they only considered capital gains income for people that are above the 90%. And for anyone below in the bottom 90%, no capital gains. Now that's interesting. In what ways do people have capital gains? I don't know. Could be from selling houses. Maybe they're doing a little bit of side trading. Maybe some uh, little retirement incomes that they have. Doesn't matter. We're not going to count any of it. Now it It would account for a small portion of people's incomes. Of course, if you're making lower incomes, you've got less money to invest and you're going to have a lot lower ability to make capital gains. I get it, but they're just not going to count it. And they're still going to count it for the other part. Why don't we just not count it for either one of them? Why only count it for the top 90% and not for the bottom? They say it'd be tough to get it for all the rest of them. Okay, well then don't count it for the top either. If we're going to talk about income distribution, why count some income for some people and not the same income for others? Because they're trying to push a narrative. That's why. Also, also, they use per capita GDP as the counterfactual rate. Now, what does that mean? They look at our GDP. They look at the amount of people. They say, here's what per capita GDP has gone up. What has the income distribution, the percentage, what is the income of the 25th, the 50th, the 75th? uh, What has that gone up? as it relates to per capita GDP and how that's gone up, okay? That's how they essentially came up with this number. However, taxable income does not account for the growth in health insurance benefit costs and other non-monetary compensations that are portions of GDP. So let's consider that for a minute. When your company that you work for provides you with any benefits outside of the money that they pay you, could be 401k contributions, could be um, health insurance. Now, they say non-monetary. Don't quote me on the 401k part. Let's stick on the health insurance benefit costs. That costs them money to provide that to you. Uh, my, my, my wife gets her statement um, from the company she works for of how much money they actually spend on her. And it's about 50% more than what she actually gets paid is what she costs them every year. That's not counted in the income for my wife as she is inside of these charts and graphs that we're looking at, but it is counted in the GDP. Consider that fact for a moment, that they keep it in the GDP number, and that raises the GDP number, but any of that extra compensation does not show up for the people that are receiving it. They just divide it out among people and act like those people aren't getting paid any more than the number figures that they're putting out there. The study's already dead to me right now, but there's even more. Just wait. There's more. Don't worry. On top of that, what do we know about as people 
Well, well, let's first talk about this. What about full-time and part-time labor? Part-time labor grew by 154% the amount of people that were doing part-time labor, meaning the people in these groups, in these lower-income quartiles, we'll call them right now, the lower-income quartiles, could be working part-time. The full-time labor grew by 100%, part-time grew by 154% over that time. So a lot of those people in the lower quintiles are people that could be working part-time. And yes, they're making less money, which would show up in a, in a, in a quintile as a lower income for that quintile. And in full-time, those people make more money. That number actually grew by less, the amount of people working full-time, and those are going to show up in the higher quintiles. And then on top of that, what do we know about as you get older? As you get older, typically you tend to make more money. Most people, as you get older, you tend to make more money, which is why it's bad to look at people in groups. And it is better uh, to look at people as individuals. Over this period of time, from 1975 to 2018, the number of people with earnings, 20 to 24, this is the age range, grew by 13%. The number of people grew by 13% in that 20 to 24 age range. 50 to 64, 55 to 64 grew by 111% and 65 and over grew by 143%. What do we know about people that are 65 and older? Older, they could be retired. They could have used some capital gains. They could be making more money, especially 55 to 64. If you haven't retired yet, you're more than likely making more money than other people uh, that are younger than you because that tends to be how salaries work over time. They go up and up, and so does your age at the same time. Those people grew by well over, there's well over 100% more in the population that are older only 13% more 20 to 24, but those are the people who make the less, the least amount of money. Meaning, the people who make the most amount of money, the amount of them grew, so the amount of money in that group grew. So if you don't account for the amount of people in that group, and you just look at the share of the national income or GDP that is going to that group, and then you don't account for the fact that the amount of older people doubled while the amount of younger people essentially stayed the same, meaning that's how many stayed in the lower income groups, more than likely, then that completely skews your income statistics immediately. You add more people in the higher up groups that are making more money because the population gets older and older. Did they know this when they did this? I think they did. I really think they did. Okay. Why do they do this? Maybe they themselves are upset. Maybe they are envious. Maybe they truly believe it. Or maybe they think that, uh, maybe they think the people at the top are evil. Maybe they think uh, Jeff Bezos is evil. Maybe they think your, your grandparents are evil because uh, they make more money, even though they're, maybe they're 65 years old and they make more money. Or your parents are evil because they're 65 years old and they make more money than people that are 24 years old. Does that make you evil? 
Does it make you evil to be 65 years old and make more money than someone who's 25 years old? No, it doesn't. Is it wrong that someone who is 65 is now earning more money than someone that is 25? No, it is not. This study essentially tells you that. That is all it tells you. All right. I didn't get to the Steve Forbes interview. We're going to have him on after the break. We'll be right back. Some of you have wanted to support Free Talk Live's mission on a monthly basis, but don't want to support Patreon. Now we have an alternative that also helps our premier streaming platform, Odyssey. Visit video.freetalklive.com and click join at the top of the channel. You can subscribe for $5 per month, and unlike other subscription services, Odyssey adds their processing fee on top, so it'll cost a little over $5 per month, but Free Talk Live will receive the entire amount you pledged. Higher donation tiers are available if you're feeling so inspired. You'll get a special membership badge that's visible in the Odyssey chat room, and if we get enough supporters, we may enable members-only chat. This new subscription method is a great way to decentralize our direct listener support away from just Patreon and also support a libertarian-run business, Odyssey. Please visit video.freetalklive.com and click join to subscribe to our Odyssey channel and help support spreading our message around the planet. Visit video.freetalklive.com and click join today. What's up, liberty-loving friends? This is Nate Thurston, Liberty at Night on the Free Talk Live Network. Our co-host Charlie is going to be here eventually, I promise you. We're going to keep talking about capitalism, and I'm going to have the Steve Forbes interview in this segment. I tell you what. Now, continuing on from the last segment, I wanted to talk about uh, this one thing here. Um, We were talking about the share of Americans that are older uh, versus the share of Americans that are younger, and the share of Americans that are older is higher now. Uh, And people who are older typically make more money. And so when you look at the share of income going to, say, the top quintile versus the bottom quintile, uh, it would not be hard to understand that as the share of the population is getting older, a larger share of the income is also in the top quintile because people who are older typically make more money. That's what we were talking about. Another thing that you have to be, uh, you have to be careful of when people are talking about these stats as they will like to use household income statistics. Household income. What do they likely not tell you? They likely are not going to tell you how many people are in the household. Uh, that, and that's a big one, just so you know. If you're going to use household income, it's important to know how many people are in the household. Well, this is an interesting one. A record share of Americans are living alone. Record share, living alone right now. Single-person households have more than tripled since 1940. And so we were just talking about this study and uh, what's happened. Now, when you look at household income statistics and you see the fact that, excuse me, you see the fact that um, people will like to say that household incomes have been stagnant. Household incomes have stagnated. Well, I also think it's very important to note that the amount of people living in a household has decreased during that time as well. Let me give you an example of how household income can go down when you make more money. Let's say there are two people living in a house together. They're roommates sharing the house. And uh, they're both making 20 grand a year. Can't really afford to pay for the house on their own. They're both making 20. They both get good 
uh, better paying jobs or, or good raises, like a really good raise, like 50% raise. Let's say their income goes from 20 to 30, both of them. Well, now their household income just went from 40 up to 60. That's great, isn't it? But now, guess what? They didn't really like being roommates. They were just doing it because they couldn't afford it on 20 grand a year, but they can't afford it on 30. And so they decide that they're not going to be roommates anymore. They're going to get their own places, their own apartments, and live separately. Now, you just took one household that had 40,000 before the raise, before the raise had 40,000 in household income. Their household income went up by 50%. And what did you come out with afterwards? You had household income going down to 30000 because they decided that they weren't going to live together anymore. And now instead of forty k between the two of them, they're each only making thirty. And even though both of their incomes went up by 50%, household income just decreased by 25% if you were to look at it on a chart. That is how stupid household income statistics are. And that's how dumb most of these statistics are, just so you know. You can use them to tell you anything that you want. The age one is is very important. You want to know another important thing that we're carrying on from this article uh, that had to do with, it had to do with $50 trillion being stolen from the working people by the top 1%. And if things would have remained constant, if, if even inequality would have remained constant since the 1970s, uh, then people would be making so much more money. And these top one percenters have stolen the fruits of your labor. They have stolen $50 trillion from you, and we would have all had better lives. But unfortunately, we cannot. You know what else happened since the time that they talk about in that study, 1975? The U.S. government spent, not adjusted for inflation, $113 trillion. And as Milton Friedman would say, the true tax is what the government spends, not what it takes in. I know that that's a tax, but they will pay for it one way or another, meaning the true tax on the people is what they spend. They're going to pay for it either through taxation or through borrowing or through inflation, through money printing. All right, so it's going to get paid for. Well, they spent over twice as much, not adjusted for inflation since 1975. Did they steal the fruits of our labor? Old Time Magazine, which is the article we were reading beforehand? Yes, the answer is yes. They absolutely did. What were what would our economy look like otherwise? Now, of course, they would tell you, well, there would be and there would be no schools, and there would be no roads, and there would be no air, and there would be no water, and there would only be suffering and death and despair. And that's essentially what it would look like. Um, we don't, uh, we don't believe that. We just think that there should be more voluntary means of governance, uh, because that's how they would actually get the amount of money they were worth and not just steal it from you with guns. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Folks, it can be tough to know which direction to take in life. For example, you might think doing this podcast was an easy move, but it wasn't. It takes a willingness to work crazy hours, read people's differing opinions, and make well, what you might expect a mid-level libertarian podcast to make. What gets me through is knowing I'm being true to myself and my values. So whether you're dealing with decisions around career, relationships, or anything else, therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want 
while you navigate life so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. Therapy made a huge difference in my life and co-host Charlie's use BetterHelp for years. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash GML today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash G-M-L. All right, so we're going to go on to uh, another thing here. In this study that we were talking about before the break, they used 1975 as a time that they're going to start measuring how this inequality happened. Well, isn't that a weird time for them to pick? Why didn't they pick uh, 1985 or 1965 or 55? It's kind of weird. They picked 1975. It reminded me of this website. It's called WTF Happened in 1971, I think is the website, .com. You check that out. Now, I don't agree with all of the implications uh, people draw from this, uh, that inferences. I don't remember which one it is. I'm sorry. You can get, get mad at me for that if you want to. Uh, someone tell me, Nate, at goodmorningliberty.us, which one I should use in that specific moment. I will definitely read the email and respond accordingly. Uh, but in 1971, Nixon officially axed the gold standard. We had something in the early 1970s known as the Nixon shock, uh, where we have uh, essentially removal from the gold standard, and the Fed was just given free reign, just Just print stuff. Come on, just go. And then we also froze wages and then price controls at the same time. Now, if you remember in that previous discussion, here's one interesting thing I forgot to mention. We had the price controls and the the wage controls. We know that in the 40s from FDR, we got more people offering benefits, more employers offering benefits uh, because of wage controls. They needed to find a way to be competitive. And then we also had this again in the 70s. This income distribution that they mention does not count your compensation. For instance, if you are provided with, uh, if your employer pays towards your health care, your health insurance, anything like that, any of your other compensation, they don't count that in the study, which is great just for them if they want to make bad points. But when you look at charts and graphs, you can always see the specific point that things changed and it's right around 71, 72, 73 right in this time. And if you're watching on YouTube, go to BernieLies.com, find the button. Um, you can just see in 1971, the lines, all these charts, they just go nuts. All right. And it just continues to happen. You see 1971 and the chart just goes nuts. And that's also the study that we talked about previously decided they were going to talk about 19, they were going to start their data set in 1975 fully after the Nixon shock and the wage and price controls and the health care is a benefit to help with your wages, things like that. Um, yeah, I think they picked that year for a reason. I'll just say that. All right, let's move on through here. Uh, there is a, there's a study in here. No, we went through the study. I want to go through this meme. Yeah, I want to look at this meme. Then we'll do the Steve Forbes uh, interview after that, here's a meme from Stop Cop City. Stop Cop City. They say fact. What does it say? 
It's a uh, the Simpson meme. Don't make me tap the sign. You know the bus driver. Sorry, I don't know all the names of everyone on the Simpsons. I'm gonna call this guy Yellow Bus Driver. It says, "Don't make me tap the sign." The sign says, "There is no such thing as a good billionaire, regardless of what anyone tells you. There was, is, and always will be no ethical way to make that much money." And I say to that, uh. No, that is not the true. I say there's no such thing as a good billionaire and there's no ethical way to make that much money. I want to address one common misconception here, which is that billionaires have made that much money. First off, and I mean almost all of them, the billionaires um, have that much money because of the ownership of their companies. They have it in stock. And a good example I always give you is that Elon Musk was a multi-billionaire, not just from PayPal and whatever else, uh, but he was worth billions of dollars because of Tesla at a time when Tesla had never profited any money. They were only losing money. And he was still worth billions of dollars because people were valuing Tesla at however many billions of dollars they wanted to value that. And so... What does that mean? Does that mean he became a billionaire by stealing from his workers? No, that actually means his workers were being paid even when the product of their labor, the value of their labor, was not profitable. It was not actually making any money. Uh, The company was losing money. And so they were being paid more than what they were technically producing at that time. Were people upset about that? Fact, I doubt it. I highly doubt that they were upset about that. In fact, I don't remember anyone being mad. But what they did get mad about is when the company started to be profitable and they started, the value of it started to increase rapidly. And then he was worth so many more billions. But he was worth the billions before they made money. How did that happen? It's because it was just a portion of the ownership of the company, not from money that he stole from people. People gave him that money as an investment. They had their money that they had saved or they had for retirement or whatever. And they said, I want you to make more money from my money so I can retire even happier. And so that's one way that Elon Musk uh, became even wealthier or investors handing over their money to his companies. What about all the people who have created such great things, things that make our lives better on a daily basis? And they became billionaires. Is it not? It's not ethical to ever make that money. Let's say that you think the COVID vaccine is the greatest thing and uh, greatest modern miracle of scientific history that you've ever seen, ma'am. How many lives do you think it's saved? Millions? Hundreds of millions of lives? Would you say you think the COVID vaccine saved? And and perhaps it did. Is the the company that made that, should they have made a billion dollars? off of saving hundreds of millions of people? You would say, no, there's no such, there's no ethical way to make that money. Saving hundreds of millions of lives is not an ethical way to make that money. Well, that's kind of a devaluation of human beings, isn't it? It turns out there's a lot of great people throughout history that have created so many great things and great products that have changed our lives. And they became wealthy. Some of them lost it all. Some of them became wealthy again. 
but they changed everything for the better. They changed everything for the better. And that's the beauty of free market capitalism, a true, true free market capitalism, which is you get rich by helping other people, by creating the way that they would want to turn over their money to you because they value what you're giving them more than they value their money. And so let's talk to the one and only, who is the guy you want to talk to about this? I want to talk to the one and only Steve Forbes about capitalism. We caught up with him at Freedom Fest. Here we go. I am currently sitting down with the one and only Steve Forbes. Steve, thank you for being here. Nate, good to be with you. Thank you. So I wanted to talk to you about this, this new thing, Steve Forbes on Achievement, and this partnership with Is it? Uh, .org. Could you tell us a little bit uh, about that? Uh, what it is, a series of short biographies, three, three and a half minutes, on people who helped create the world we live in today, uh, what, it, what it took to do it, the amazing backgrounds, the obstacles they overcame, free market lesson in terms of uh, what, what kind of society you need, what kind of environment that uh, makes uh, these achievements possible. And uh, whether it's a George Eastman, who took a very laborious process of uh, photography in the late 1880s, 1890s, and came up with cameras that everyone could use, turning something that was a rarity into a commonplace, turning scarcity into abundance. Uh, Malcolm McLean, who uh, created uh, seemingly something simple, what they call the box, the container ship, uh, that enabled uh, uh, trade to grow, cut uh, cost by 95% when he had that technology developed. Fierce resistance, unions resistance, ports resisted it, finally came in, cut costs by more than 95% in terms of uh, shipping. Or uh, Annie Malone, who uh, prospered at a time when women weren't allowed to vote. She was African-American, another obstacle. She created an empire of hair care products for African-American women and uh, other devices. And uh, she, at the height, had 75,000 agents selling here and around the world. And the lesson there is she not only did well, but her agents did well, and those who bought the products did well. And that's the amazing thing about free markets. Everyone benefits with that kind of openness and creativity. Now, as I'm hearing about this, all of that that you just said were things that I did not learn in school when I went to school. And as I understand, this is actually going to be used by some teachers. That's right. It's, it's for educators and for kids and for everyone else. And it's done through stories. People want to know what, what happened when you show them, ask them present it to them. Uh, how, how did they do it? What were the obstacles? Life never goes in, in, in a straight direction. I mentioned Mal- Malcolm McLean. Created this uh, container ship revolution, sold his company, dabbled in real estate and some other things, then decided to get back into the business, raised a lot of money from prestigious investors, overexpanded, his timing was off, and he went broke. So uh, success is not, uh, one success doesn't mean you're going to always have success. But like a good entrepreneur, he uh, went back at it, was working on a third company at the age of 87 when 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 he died. On the day of his funeral, the container ships all around the world stopped and tooted their horns in honor of the man who made their existence possible. Now, these days, when we talk about those entrepreneurs, a lot of times it has a negative connotation to it. That's the, that's the way you hear, especially people who have uh, gained a lot of wealth, created a lot of wealth over that time. So why is this so important for people well, to learn well, well, about? Well, it's important to realize uh, that uh, free markets are about free people. 
entrepreneurs creating things that uh, improve our lives. And the fact that it's so open, uh, we're working on our second season, uh, producing that. Uh, one of the people is uh, Margaret Rudkin, uh, Pepperidge Farm. How did that come about in the 20s and 30s? She had a son who had uh, serious uh, illnesses and uh, couldn't eat processed bread. And so she decided to create, see if she could create a bread that her son could eat. And she said the first uh, loaf was like the Stone Age. But she came up with whole wheat bread in response to the need of her son. Uh, she uh, Doctors began to prescribe it, became more popular. Then she went to a Belgium after the war and got the uh, chocolate formulas mm-hmm. uh, that enabled us to have all those wonderful cookies, Milano and others. Goldfish, she got that idea from her travels to Switzerland. So creating this uh, Pepperidge Farm... Who would have thought that a woman who uh, had a sick son would uh, end up creating this uh, wonderful empire uh, of products that people people liked? See, it's stories like that where uh, we, we seem to be making it harder and harder for people to build those businesses and create those products. And we don't know what doesn't get created. Well, that is a very important point. What you don't see, mm. you don't miss. And, uh, for example, do, do a little mind exercise. Imagine bringing somebody back from the dead 40 years ago and try to describe the Internet. You <laughs> could not do it. They would be absolutely flummoxed. What in the world are you talking about? So if it was never invented, no, wouldn't have missed it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's one of the things we hope uh, people take away, make it possible for these uh, great figures. Uh, we're here in uh, Tennessee and uh, in Memphis. This is where the supermarket was invented. We just did a shoot of a fellow named Clarence Saunders. Over 120 years ago, when you went to the store to buy something, you went, all the products were behind the counter. You gave a clerk a list of what you wanted. Uh, the clerk would uh, amble over. Uh, you might negotiate prices. It was a laborious, labor-intensive process. He was a salesman, wholesaler. And he said, this can be done better. Why do we have all these clerks, people, when they come to a store, know what they want? And so he invented a supermarket Hmm. where you would go through a turnstile. All the products would be open on the shelves. Prices would be all stated there. You could pick what you want. It increased impulse buying because you didn't have to go through somebody. A third party could do it directly. And so he could offer lower prices. And what this uh, lesson is, among other things, making life easier, was that it uh, was about trust. Markets are about trust. You go to a restaurant, the restaurant trusts that you'll pay after you have the meal. He, he trusted that you weren't going to, and there's sadly in the environment we live in today, there's a lot of pilferage, but he decided he was going to trust the customer. Even though they, they, the product wasn't protected behind the counter, it was on the shelf. And so uh, these kind of stories, I think, will give people, especially younger people, an appreciation without preaching to them of what uh, freedom and uh, the ability to uh, try things uh, can can lead to. And so they can build that appreciation without it being preached to them and in a divisive way. Too too abstract when you when you talk. What are you talking about? But a story like that, a story like Mark and Rudkin, Annie Malone. Yeah, that they can get. Annie Malone. 
very little education, but was interested in chemistry, interested in uh, coming up with things. And that's the kind of thing that strikes chords with people. Yeah, okay. That's great. I love, now, all these videos, you can find them on isit.org, right? Is and it also on YouTube, slash I believe, Forbes. right? Isit.org slash Forbes. And uh, we have the first season up. We're, we're in the midst of uh, shooting our second season. And uh, again, people like stories, and stories have lessons. And that's uh, what makes this so exciting. And a big thanks to Steve Forge for sitting down with us. We'll be back after the break. Don't go anywhere. What's up, all of our liberty-loving friends? This is Liberty at Night with Nate and Chuck. I'm Nate Thurston. We're going to be talking to Spike Cohen in this segment. Uh, Spike was the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in 2020. He's also, uh, he's now running, uh, and he's now running something called You Are the Power. It's one of the cooler things I've seen. He's also been cutting some viral clips out there for people. He might have even got one for us in this interview. Uh, we'll see. But essentially, it's highlighting how important it is for us to be active on local levels. And in fact, a lot of our our, our local cities, especially mid-level, smaller cities, they're not used to people being active. And they're highly receptive to it. And you get someone like Spike on your side in one of these things, uh, one of these instances, uh, you can you can really make some changes out there. That really is how our government is set up, how the country is set up. During COVID, we found out how important it was to have good local governments or to be in the right state at the right time. I've, I've often told people that I live outside of Nashville, Tennessee. I technically live in Davidson County, uh, but I actually go to Mount Juliet, which is in Wilson County, I believe, for most of my things, my grocery shopping or going out to eat or whatever. And during COVID, even my wife and I's favorite restaurant never closed down. And they never told anyone to wear masks. And we technically live in Davidson, Nashville, Metro County. And we didn't really have to worry about wearing masks when we went around the places. Um, our state was okay on it. They, they weren't perfect. They were better than a lot of them, not as good as some. But if the time through the COVID pandemic showed us anything, it's that we all need to be more involved on a local level. Uh, it's really difficult to make change on a national level. I mean, there's so many people. There's a lot of people out there. It's tough to get an entire movement together for something, especially if the something is good and just. You know, it's it's really tough to get that movement together. But on a local level, when someone's doing the things that, that Spike's talking about in this interview, you think of something going on in your town, even your HOA. Man, I got a tyrannical HOA. You know, we all know the jokes about the HOA and you got your Karen that's running the HOA or whatever it is that you want to call her. Man, every HOA's got those things. But isn't it so much easier to talk to those people, make those changes at your HOA, it is. It's much easier. And so why don't we all do ourselves a favor and get more involved in local politics? Uh, we love Spike. Spike gets us going every time. He's uh, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, person in the liberty movement. I'll have to think on that. I don't know, Spike. We'll see. Uh, but he's great. He's a great guest every single time we've had him on. So let's talk to Spike real quick. Spike, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, guys. Thanks for having me on again. 
All right, and Spike, we've had you on a few times now, and I don't recall us spending a good amount of time talking about You Are the Power, yeah. but I've been following what you guys are doing. I uh, wanted you to tell people about that if they don't know what that is, and then maybe tell us about a story you guys are highlighting right now, or sure. the kind of stories you highlight. Yeah, so You Are the Power, uh, I realized that we had, I guess, three main problems in the liberty movement, uh, and I speak very broadly when I talk about the liberty movement. I mean everything from you know anarcho-capitalists, libertarian party members, liberty-leaning people that may consider themselves progressives, conservatives, people who just recognize the status quo is failing them and they want to be more free. But in this movement, we have a problem where we don't really have a good solid blueprint for how to bring people into the movement. We talk a lot about making liberty win and growing the movement, but there aren't a lot of really good blueprints for that. There's a lot of good ideas, but no one actually has an A through Z plan. Um, And that leads to a lot of infighting and a lot of frustration and so forth. Uh, The other problem is the general public either doesn't really know much about us Or they have a really skewed perception of us and they think our ideas might or might not sound good, but they don't really, they can't demonstrate it in practice or they don't think it's been demonstrated in practice. And then the third glaring problem from that is that people are increasingly suffering under a worsening status quo. Well, how do we address all three of those things? Well, we started with the people who are suffering. And so what we did with You Are the Power is we find people who are being harmed by their local governments. And I I can give you a couple examples of that, but they're being harmed by their local governments uh, and they have no, uh, they don't know how to actually try to get justice for themselves they might just be showing up to city council meetings and saying please stop doing this to me but they don't they don't know how to effectively fight it and so we help their we help them and their local communities to organize around that cause and to fight for justice and for accountability and then we also invite the people that are doing that to join us on other causes and help them learn about the the principles behind liberty and why not only they agree with us on this cause but on every other cause we're working on so we kind of make them Uh, uh, accidentally libertarian or we kind of you know here's a cause here's a cause here's a cause oops now you're libertarian and uh, it's been working incredibly so give us give us an example sure so the one we've been working on one of the ones we've been working on most recently uh is we're back to gastonia north carolina and i say that because we've been there a few times they have a really terrible city council there uh, and a, a really deeply ingrained uh, a corruption there. Um, the most recent one is that there is a, a pastor there named Moses Colbert, and he has a church called Faith, Hope, and Love. And he and his congregants uh, have been feeding and providing shelter and basic needs to uh, uh, basic services to homeless people in and around Gastonia for the better part of 20 years now, to the point where there are people that were some of the original residents there at Faith, Hope, and Love who now are congregants who have their own homes and their own careers, and they were able to get clean and they were able to get educations because of the work that Pastor Moses and his congregation do. The problem is the city council wants a homelessness crisis, and you can't have a homelessness crisis when the people are coming together and voluntarily helping people get back on their feet. <laughs> So unlike a lot of, that. <laughs> uh, uh, unlike most of the other towns in and around Charlotte, the Charlotte, North Carolina area, they don't really have a bunch of people living on the streets. They don't have a bunch of uh, overdoses and suicides on the streets. They don't have a lot of street crime happening from people trying to get their next fix. They don't have any of that, but they want it because that's how you get federal money to fix the problem. And so what they did was they uh, they, they at first they shut them down uh, last year. We fought back and they, they allowed them to reopen. And now their plan is not just to shut them down but to completely steal his church, to seize the property it's on, and to kick everyone out on the street. We're looking at about 125 people that are, that are living on and in the property there who are doing just fine, but they want them back out on the street. 
How are they framing this? I doubt they're saying that they want a homelessness crisis. No, no, so what's not. their reasoning <laughs> that they're using to, to sell to the people? They're saying that, uh, you know, that there are some uh, infractions happening there. And the, so far, the only infraction we've seen is that uh, one of the trailers that we've brought to the property that is eventually going to be used for counseling and substance abuse counseling and things like that, but isn't currently being used, doesn't have a, a, a wheelchair accessible ramp yet. That's the only thing we can find so far. There was another thing about that there was some litter on the property, but the problem with that ordinance is that it's private property, and it's not even visible to the street. So he, they're going to fine him because he had, had because they've cleaned it up now, uh, a, a pile about this big of like cans and bottles on his private property, not in the view of anyone else. And they're saying, well, this is all very unsafe. Much more, uh, much more unsafe, of course, than kicking them out on the streets and making them live on the streets and in the woods behind where everyone lives and, uh, you know, dying of overdose and, and, and suicide. And well, the so woods forth. are very, they're known for being very handicap accessible. Yes. So, yes. Um, As are the sidewalks. So yeah. many ramps, so, so many better. ramps in the woods. Just, yeah. It's just lousy with ramps out in the, in the, in the, in the forest there. And uh, yeah, so they're, they're playing this angle of saying, you know, this is very unsafe. You know, that's a lot of people to be on a property. Yeah. It's also a lot of people to have no other option. And, uh, and so, uh, we show, we've been showing up to their city council meetings. Each time, we have more and more people there. The most recent one we had a couple weeks ago, um, and it was other pastors and congregations from other churches that have now been working with Pastor Moses and Faith, Hope, and Love, uh, as well as a few dozen of the residents there at Faith, Hope, and Love who came to basically ask these city council people, these human beings, stop trying to kick me out in the street. I'm not doing anything to hurt you. And so I showed up. I gave a little two-minute speech. That clip went viral. And uh, the beauty of that is on the, uh, on when I tweeted it and posted it and so forth, I put the names and the contact information, the email and uh, phone numbers of the mayor and all of the city council members so that the millions of people that saw it can let them know what they think about what they're doing. And, uh, and so what we most recently heard is that there's been a pause on enforcement and that they're working with Pastor Moses to let him continue doing what he's mm. doing. So cyberbullying the government works, folks. <laughs> it works. Dox the government anytime you can. Do- I guess yeah. it's not really doxing. It's not doxing because no. it has to be public information. Yeah, I didn't give their home yeah. addresses. That's these are the true. kinds of stories that just make you so angry that these, that these things happen. And people who just get a little bit of power just want to abuse it yep. all for all for money. For money. It's liter- they're literally doing this. I mean, if you, gotta, you think of the mindset of someone who probably considers himself a Christian. This is, you know, Gastonia, North Carolina. I'm sure everyone up there considers themselves either a Christian or some kind of person of, of some kind of faith. Uh, they, I'm sure they well, all they definitely think of themselves as good people. Yeah, they certainly think ever, of themselves yeah. as good people. Yeah. I'm sure they, they kiss their kids or grandkids at night, and, and I'm sure they're active in their, in their communities and so forth. And then they get behind that, that you know, lectern. They get behind that desk, and now they put aside the respect that they typically show for their fellow human being in any other capacity of their lives and do horrific things to them for money and the ability to get reelected. And it just shows how skewed that perception is of what they get to do, both from them and from the voting public, on what someone gets to do when they're on the other side of a, of a government lectern, as though that somehow uh, removes their, their, uh, their duty to have a certain decent amount of respect and non-aggression towards their fellow human being. This reminds me of, do you know who Cole Ebel is? Yes, Cole Ebel, yeah, in, in Tennessee. Ebel, sorry, yeah. So Ebel, uh, he owns a few businesses in Carthage, yep. and uh, he was on the city council for a while. Started posting the budgets and everything on Facebook, which <laughs> I thought was awesome, uh, transparency. 
Uh, but there's a new fight that he's working on, which is basically, um, so the city of Carthage basically created a government entity that now runs the town events in competition with the volunteer committee that's been doing it for 20 plus years. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and they're basically now not going to permit the volunteer community to, to do like Halloween night and yeah. things like that. That's it right. has to be done yeah. by the government entity. They want money. They want money. It's insanity. The government you, is always a monopoly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's nuts. And what's crazy to me is that you can take this story you're telling, remove the specifics of the story in Gastonia, and it sounds like what the government does all the time. Everywhere. Like, they're always trying to help. They're trying to help. The, it's for your safety. Yeah. It's to, you know. Protect the public. <laughs> to, yes. It's for your protection. Yeah. Yeah. And they make everything worse. They get rich in the process, or they make they get more money in the process for whatever their budget is. And in the meantime, uh, people are being hurt. It is a protection racket with extra steps. It is, uh, this is a great community guy here. Be a shame if someone was to have a crisis and need to fix it. Like, I mean, it's literally, that's what it is. And I, in my little two-minute speech that I, get, that I gave, I said, you know, it's very clear why you're doing this. Like, if you allow this man of God and his congregation to fix and prevent a homelessness crisis, then people are going to start turning around and wondering what the hell they need you for. Mm-hmm. And that's really the reality of it. I mean, full disclosure, I'm an anarchist. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. And, and if, if we are to live in a government, then it should only exist to protect our lives, rights, and property, and so forth. But the reality is, government is a monopoly on violence. It, it, it imposes itself the same way that a mob does. And it has the same level of, of the, the pomp and ceremony that it creates and the, and the, the badges and the, the titles and everything. But all that is just to hide what it is at its core. It's a bunch of people who in no other capacity of their lives would do this, because they're in this specific role that they've created for themselves or has been created for them, they claim to be able to rule over you, to take from you whatever they wish, and to, uh, and to order you around and to create crises or make them worse so they can get even more money and put you in a desperate situation so that you rely on them. They're all, worse than the mob. All under the guise of for the good of the people. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, yeah, it's the biggest scam going. Yeah. So the people in this town specifically and some other ones, are you, are, are you getting a good response for libertarianism? Or the other thing I want to ask is, does that matter? Does it matter if they are libertarians, <laughs> if they do libertarian things exactly. all the time? Exactly. That's what I, I, I increasingly talk less and less uh, in my capacity in, in, with you or the power. I talk less and less about ideas like property and rights and non-aggression and liberty. I talk about respecting individual human beings. And here's the reason behind that. I can explain that to a five-year-old and mm-hmm. they'll get it. I don't care if someone identifies as a libertarian. I don't care if they identify as the exact opposite of a libertarian. If they are routinely showing up with us to fight on these causes and to fight for an expansion of freedom or at least a reduction in infringements on our freedom, then they're doing more good than 90% of the people out there calling themselves libertarians, frankly. I mean, they're, they're actually out there doing work. And so I would much rather have someone who is activated, excited, and ready to move on to the next thing and to continue to fight until we win on, on cause after cause after cause than someone who, you know, fully, completely gets the, the, the Rothbardian ideas of anarcho-capitalism and doesn't do I'm perfectly honest. I've never read Rothbard, and I'm just going to come out and say it. I'm <laughs> sorry, okay? Uh, I, 
I think we just lost half the audience. Uh, <laughs> sorry. No, I want to be clear about something. I consider myself a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist, and, it, and it's good to have these principles. Uh, you know, faith without works is dead. If you if you have these principles and you aren't doing anything with them other than you know calling people stupid on the internet, what are you doing other than making enemies? I've stopped. How are you spreading freedom? As I get older, I stop listening to what people say, and I just look at what they do. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and like the, yeah. the, I think the one of the greatest examples is is like. Especially in this day and age, all you know, a bunch of people are talking about how they're going to leave America, which is which is great. I mean, I think they should, but um, <laughs> but uh, they don't do it, and so it's like they clear <laughs> they say all these things, but then there's no action. Whereas, like you know, you see actual Cubans, they find a stick, yeah, and float across Paddle you know across, ninety yeah. miles yeah, of yeah. ocean, yeah, just to get to a little bit of freedom like, and risk what, getting who deported actually, when they get here and still do it. Yeah, yeah who yeah, actually? Yeah. yeah, who actually believes? And what they say. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. If you hate, if you want this country to be less free so much that you'd like to leave and then you don't, you're not helping us here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but go on orbits. You know, there's, is. there's, there's one way flights yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So what, so what's next for you? How big is this movement right now? You are the power. Are you focused in, you know, the area, North Carolina around there a lot? Uh, we we focus on the causes that that we find. We work on a lot of causes where all we have to do is put up a post or okay. beat them up in the, in the comments. Because you they, travel a lot, off. so I don't know if you're just going around cutting viral clips for people all the time or. or <laughs> I, no, I, and I'm doing that as well. But yeah. the reality is, like I'd say, uh, two thirds to three quarters of the causes we win, you don't hear much about it because we really just have to beat them up once on one of their posts and they back yeah. right off. Gastonia is one where they're kind of entrenched. But uh, to answer your question about how we're growing, uh, to put it in perspective on the strength of the work that we are doing at You Are the Power, I got invited to go to Australia for 11 days and speak to Australian libertarians in parliament in two different states. And I found out while I was there that we've been told a lie about Australia. The reason that they went from having the worst lockdowns in the developed world to nothing is because the Australian liberty movement grew by leaps and ground, leaps and bounds in a very short period of time from just a few dozen people who were protesting every day and getting beaten up by cops and going out the next day and doing it again to over 350,000 people going to places like Melbourne and Sydney and saying, this ends now. And that liberty movement is per capita far bigger than anything we have here and has been incredibly effective in making sure that something like the COVID regime never happens. And in fact, they even have elected libertarians in parliament. And so when I went there, we had some great conversations. We made some great connections. And long story short, uh, we are in the process of opening an Australian chapter state by state of You Are the Power. This reminds That's me, so I, wanted, cool. I wanted to get the scoop here. I heard that you were considering announcing you running for office in Australia. Is yes. that the case? Are you yeah, do it? At the end of one of the workshops, we had an incredible <laughs> workshop, hundreds of, uh, of libertarians from across Australia and New Zealand were actually sitting in Parliament on July 4th. I was in the heart of the, the monarchist beast, just a few matter of feet away from the, the, the sovereign's chair, which has a little st- <laughs> only the king can sit in it, and it has a little <laughs> sign on it that says, please don't sit, and the scepter's there and everything. But anyway, we're sitting in there, we're doing this workshop, you know, there are people on Zoom, there are people in person, and at the end I go, you know, I, you know, it just became, it was, it was midnight Eastern time, uh, July 4th. And I said, you know, it just became July 4th back home. And, and I, I can't think of a better time than the, the time that we commemorate our declaration of independence from the crown. And I couldn't think of a better place than right here in the center of the crown in Australia, surrounded by some of the most incredible libertarians on the planet to announce that I am seeking the Libertarian Party's nomination for prime minister. I'm not leaving. And, uh, <laughs> and it was funny because as I'm, 
like because I was doing it real slow and drawn out, and their eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And then I say prime minister, and they start laughing. But what was funny was how many of them were like, hope that I actually meant it and yeah. that I would actually become a citizen of Australia. So I mean, listen, <laughs> I go where I'm wanted, but I uh, we uh, he we is for sale. Okay. I, I'm, that's the lease at the very least for yes, your yeah. love, not for money. Yes, yeah. for love yeah. and adoration. Just for yeah. 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 Well, it's. You I can know, use the money too, though. I mean, yeah, I'll take yeah. money. Yeah. Most people think, like, I think we have it so good still in America. I mean, I know. Yeah. yeah. Comparatively, that most people still think, like, oh, that'll never happen, you know? And it's, then and then it starts to happen. And I think in Australia, it was way worse. Um, but even in America, you saw people coming out and being like, okay, this is enough. You know, like, the way you can in- increasingly encroach on people's freedoms is that frog in the boiling water effect. You have to do it slowly, 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 slowly. Uh, here, the COVID regime kind of was a little bit too much of a jump. In Australia, it was like you know going straight to boiling and just throwing the frog in. It it, it went from you know Australia having pretty you know pretty chill cops and and you know letting people do their own thing on a day to day basis to being way more brutal uh, than our cops mm-hmm. are during those types of situations and telling people they can't leave their houses after 7 p.m. And when I say leave their house, I mean go outside on their own property. They weren't allowed to do that. And if they did, they had to wear a mask and all this nonsense. And and they went so far to that extreme that the public bucked back and said, no, we're not doing that. I mean, you literally had soccer moms storming parliament. You had You had everyday people that, you know, a few weeks or months prior were just normal everyday people trying to live their lives, keep their heads low and, and you know, build something for their future. They were storming police barricades and it was just they were done. They were absolutely done. And, and when I would go to these events and I'd say, you know, who here has always been a libertarian? And like two or three people would raise their hand, not including me because I haven't always been a libertarian. And I'd say, all right, who is here because of the COVID regime? And like almost everyone would raise their hand. That movement grow, grew almost overnight. And it was absolutely incredible. And, and I, uh, I am hoping to bring that energy that I saw in other parts of the world back here because the fact is they're already queuing up for whatever the next thing is, the next excuse to, to take your freedoms and to impose something upon you and use it as an excuse to print out trillions or tens of trillions of Fed notes to pay off the cronies that put them in office. That's all coming down the pike, and only we are going to stop it. No one's coming to save us. We have to be the ones to save us. That I sounds, think you're that saying sounds... that, that you are the power. That's what I'm right? saying, that can I'm you, Spike Cohen, a... and you... Are the power. <laughs> dot, well, what, what, dot where you to see it? Actually, yeah. dot .com, too. We have dot .com now. Okay, okay. What's cool about that is, um, uh, mate, is that... Um, <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs> What's cool about that, mate? Um, Crikey. The You Are the Power actually is... It, it played out in Australia, is what you're talking about. Because, Pretty much. Because people yeah. have to realize... Yeah. Once you get enough people, you realize how little power the government actually yeah, has. No like you get you get just a few people together and they'll back off. Yeah, yeah. look at Jan Six. <laughs> no, listen. Uh, uh, a guy I met over there named Topher Field. He was one of the first, you know, few dozen people out protesting routinely, and and he got to be there for the triumphant final protest that put an end to the thing. And uh, what he says, you you can't limit government until you limit your obedience. And put another way, there is no such thing as government power. There's only what we're willing to tolerate. Mm-hmm. The moment that even a, a relative you know, minority of us, uh, in their case, just a few hundred people were storming police barricades and saying, no, you're not going to kettle us. No, you're not going to tell us we can't go outside. No, you're not going to tell us that we can't go to our houses of worship or visit our loved ones or, or you know, reopen our, our businesses or go to work or go to the grocery store or whatever. Uh, even just a few hundred people saying that, it became impossible to enforce. And at that moment, the rest of the public went, 
oh, we don't have to do this anymore? It doesn't take, you know, we talk about the 3%. It doesn't take 3%. It takes like 50 people. Not people. Percent. Oh, God, it's yeah. probably like 100, 100 people, 1,500 people, whatever. It takes a, a relative, like, you know, nothing, infinitesimal number of people compared to the, the larger group to show the other 99.999 whatever percent that, oh, yeah, no, we, I guess we don't have to do this anymore. They can't enforce it. They can't make us all do it. So we have to all storm Area 51. Exactly. Because what they day? can't, what, they literally what day are we going to do it? Yeah. What was it before? We'll just do it a year, however many years next later. Day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like the end of the world date. It's just going to keep changing. Right. Yes, exactly. You know. All right. We got to wrap up. The end of the Mayan up. calendar. We got to wrap up. Uh, Spike, what was the website again for people to get involved? And by the way, I got to say the Twitter, he's, I mean, you just crush it on Twitter all the time. I appreciate I it. I can't retweet your stuff hard enough. I wish I could hit the button even harder than it's I like do right now. Like a super retweet. Yeah. They should be. Elon, we got to talk a paid retweet for someone as a sub, like as a subscriber. You put like a couple bucks behind an ad, basically to boost that post. You pay a dollar. Someone. You pay a dollar, and when you retweet it, it goes to all. It goes in the. You get push notifications <laughs> to <laughs> all of your followers. You have to look at this. It won't let your phone. You, you your cannot. Phone lock your phone until you look at this um no listen uh if you want to get uh join the uh, fastest growing liberty movement in the planet at this point i guess mm-hmm. uh go to you the we'd love to have you be a part of it you can find me on all social media uh spike cohen pretty easy to find me uh if you ever get lost of course uh just go to the atf facebook page look for their most recent post and, <laughs> and there you'll almost certainly find me all right y'all thanks for listening to our talk with spike cohen out there freedom fest we'll be right back after the break All right, all right, all right. We are back. Liberty at night with Nate and Chuck on the Free Talk Live Network. Thank you for hanging out with us. If you want to hear Good Morning Liberty with a new episode every single day of the week, when we want to, then you can go to BernieLies.com in your browser or just search Good Morning Liberty on your favorite podcast app. I wanted to tell you guys about some some movies that we saw, some stuff that we did over the weekend. So we're going to talk a little bit of pop culture and some of the movies uh, that are out there right now. And are you the kind of person who sees movies over and over again? Or is that just kind of weird? It's definitely a lot of money to go do that. Do you go see movies over and over again? In fact, if you're someone who sees movies over and over again, tell me what that movie was. Uh, you can just tweet us. Just tweet us at Good AM Liberty. Remember, this is Liberty at Night, but Charlie and I have a show uh, that's called Good Morning Liberty. So we got a Twitter. Send us a tweet. Tell me what movie it was. And how many times you saw it in the theater. I'm not talking about how many times you watched it. We're not talking about Shawshank Redemption here. Or Forrest Gump, in my case, which is the greatest movie of all time. And if you disagree, that's fine. There are plenty of people that are wrong about things. I get it, okay? You're more than welcome to disagree on that. So let's talk about The Sound of Freedom. And then we're also going to have this conversation, once again, about RFK Jr., who libertarians, some of them, are kind of obsessed with right now. And I guess right now we are obsessed with the fact that some libertarians are obsessed with him. Does that mean that we are obsessed? Well, we're going to talk about some some uh, words that he said in a speech at Freedom Fest that we were at uh, last week in Memphis, Tennessee. Movie recaps. Charlie, you went and saw a movie. How was it? I went and saw The Sound of Freedom with my mom. It was very heavy. It was, I mean, it was really good. It was well done. It was suspenseful. It was also um, heart-wrenching and heavy. And it makes me feel like I'm not doing anything to help anyone. <laughs> Honestly. Is that true? Are no, you not doing not, anything to no, help anyone? No, it's not true. But you should go see it, by the way. Is it should. an actual good movie? 
It is a good movie. Like if you don't yeah. even care about the content, that they do a good job with the movie. Even if you hate children. <laughs> I'm saying, aside from... So what I'm trying to say is sometimes when people have a an emotional reason to see a movie or, or like a even a political... No, like, it's it's really well like done. Q and QAnon reason to go see a movie. No, it's well like it's well done. Okay, yeah, I got it's, you. It's definitely. I mean, it seems you know like it would be high budget, okay. even though I, even though I don't think it was. Okay, it's good. It's a good movie. I went and saw the new Mission Impossible. It was amazing. It left me feeling like it was. Uh, I would say top two or top three of the seven Mission Impossible movies that there have been so far. Was that because it was an IMAX or IMAX was good. They also, it was just, it was a very good balance of great action. And then it was also really funny. Probably one of the best car chase scenes I've ever seen that also had points where you were just laughing your behind off. You're welcome, FCC, for yeah. that right there. Laughing your uh, behind off during uh, some suspenseful moments. And so, yeah, it was really good. And, and then uh, in the hotel room, Nate had never seen Goodwill Hunting. That's true. <laughs> which I thought was strange because it's, it's, Probably in my top 10 favorite movies, I think it's one of Robin Williams' best performances that's not, you know, comedic for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, what'd you think? It was really good. I, I felt, enjoyed I it. I fell asleep by the end. You fell asleep. Well, it's one it, of the movies in my rotation. Yeah. That I, that I go to sleep to at night. It was better than I imagined it would be. And I put off watching it this entire time. And uh, just 30 like, years. Just, yeah. I wanted to mention. Paula said that she saw The Sound of Freedom twice, that it was that good. Really? I'm telling you. It's a well-put-together movie. I'm going to go see Mission Impossible again, I can guarantee you that. Hmm. And I'll probably see Oppenheimer two to three times in the in the theater. So anyway, that's what we did. Oh, by the way, the um, it's not really a spoiler. It's in the first second of the movie. The The villain in Mission Impossible 7 is, is AI, that they call the entity. And this AI is going to take control of everything and manipulate everyone and change what the truth is. Um, it's kind of like Charlie's X. And... It got me thinking about AI. Bro, I was taking a drink. <laughs> it's, uh, it got me thinking, should I be more worried about AI? It wasn't actually that. First, I watched this documentary on Netflix called Killer Robots. And it was a documentary about why we should be afraid of AI. Mm. And I, I will tell you, there are things that I haven't thought of. For instance, in this Killer Robots documentary, they mention um, they ask it to make these chemical compounds that are these molecular formations uh, that are healthy or safe. And then they decide one day to send it the other direction and see how bad of a compound they can make. And it ends up making things that are more dangerous than VX nerve gas overnight. It makes like 40,000 of them. Uh, mm. Different, like it doesn't physically make them. It gives you the computation that you would need to make this thing. And um, just like overnight, the most dangerous kind of chemical compounds known to man compounds most known for their danger yeah their dangerous nature to men not women though yeah and so it was a uh, sexist ai should we be wor more worried about this kind of stuff and is terminator real i i don't know i mean if they can ever figure out how to charge themselves <laughs> you know i mean what if like okay imagine they could they could build themselves in a way that they could start to consume food mm -hmm. like we do for energy. Yeah. I mean, we, well, they do consume food. It's just an, an electrical nature yeah. by burning you know. coal or something. <laughs> coal. Yes. Yeah. But what if they just, it's they build themselves up? Backpack. It just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. steam robot running around. And then you can't unplug them, <laughs> you know? And then what are you going to do? 
I, that's that's basically the plot of Terminator right yeah, there. <laughs> that's sounds it. just like the movie to me. What yeah, I probably definitely be nuclear powered. That's for sure. They'll w- figure that out. What I thought of from watching that documentary and then watching this movie. Um, some people will watch those and they will say, well, we got to have the government regulate this then. And I'm just like, what the hell is the government going to do to regulate these things? They're not going to do anything. All they're going to do is set up a structure where only a couple big paying companies can do these things. Mm. But the people in the government, are you kidding me, man? Like, I have no clue what this stuff is. The people making it don't know what the stuff is. It's, it's brand new, and they don't know what it's going to do until they turn it on. And can you trust the government? Like, what kind of regulation are they going to make? I mean, the government, they leak all kinds of stuff. You can't trust them. They do all kinds of just human errors, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, that brings that, us to the first story. That's, um, <laughs> we finally made it to our... No, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Sorry. This was... Oh, we could actually... I was going to do some more stuff. We had a, a RFK Jr. clip oh, okay. from Freedom Fest here. Oh, that's right. Yeah, let's do that uh, first. Then. A little bit of recap on things. Now, here's why uh, I put this on the screen here. Here's why we're talking about RFK yet again, because I talked about him last week, too. This is not exactly, it's not because of this one being libertarian uh, post right here. But this is a good example. There's... Um, 8,600 votes on this, and this is a being libertarian page. It's probably mostly going to be libertarians that respond to this. And would you support RFK Jr. as a Libertarian Party nomination for president? Um, 35.9% of people said yes. And 44.4% of people. And even 20% said, said no. And then we have a maybe. I want to double check that we're good on the sound for everyone. Give us a yes. Give us a... Give us a H, yeah, if we're good on the sound. Um, I saw the computer screen flicker in and out, so I just want to double check. Okay. There we go. (laughs) We got in trouble. Yeah. (laughs) We got in trouble on the, uh, you know, that radio show we told you about. Pulled some clips. and Nate let some words slip. Charlie and I have got a little (laughs) loosey-goosey now that his mom hasn't been here as often watching the shows. And uh, and so we, our very first time being on the 160 or so radio stations around the country, we let, we let an S word slip out there. Mm. You know, the FCC won't let so me be. I saw saw that email come through, and I was like, oh, <laughs> right then, or let me be me. Okay, so 35.9 percent of the respondents on the Twitter poll, but it is from a libertarian page, a very big libertarian page say that yes they would support that also i will tell you a lot of people there to see rfk jr at freedom fest a festival most known for republicans and libertarians also the only speaker who required metal detectors to go in to watch him speak true and that's because he thinks someone's gonna try to kill him and he's gotta i get it if you're you know if I get it. If your dad and your uncle were both murdered by the CIA or whoever. And you're a presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. I get it. I yeah, get security's so, going to be different. I understand. I get that part. I don't think Freedom Fest in Tennessee where there's constitutional carry. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had signs on the door, though, that you couldn't even have a weapon in there to begin with. Yeah. At this place. Um, but anyway, you. Uh, it was just, you know, not even Mike Rowe. <laughs> required you to to drop your weapons. honestly who wants to kill micro there could be somebody out there that you know is really upset PETA people 
Peter, that's right. He said yeah. he had an issue with them. Hey, Peter, let's talk about what RFK had to say uh, over there at Freedom Fest. Now, he, there was a point during the speech that I turned to Charlie and I said, he sounds like a freaking anarchist right now. I'm only going to give you this three minutes that I chopped up. And then I also want to complain to you that Freedom Fest, for some reason, doesn't want to be involved in all of the clips that are going around Twitter, that they're showing what candidates had to say and smart or stupid things they had to say. Freedom Fest wants you to watch the live stream when they have Freedom Fest going on, and then they want you to like pay to get the videos afterwards. And so I hope that works out for them rather than being part of all the Twitter sphere with the turning point videos and the summit videos and all those other things going around. We'll the see. reason I'm saying that is because there's only 16 minutes of the RFK speech, and then you got to go to freedomfest.com, which you can only watch when it's live, and then they'll send them all out to you later on, some other day. Mm. That's it. So that's, that's a bad business model, I think. RFK is talking about his environmental activism, and uh, he will say that he thinks the free market is the best thing for the environment. There'll be a spot here where it's going to skip ahead. He is talking about the pollution of the Hudson River, and GE, he says a few words about it, and then I cut into uh, the story. Now, he does a good job telling the story, although he's kind of uh, got something in his throat the whole time, but he does a good job telling the story and pulling on your heartstrings, and it sounds like he gets a little choked up. And I understand that he, he does seem like a very sincere person. I will say that. Yeah. I think he deeply cares about these issues. He's a marketing genius. And he knows see. if you, you have to know your audience. Oh, he knew right? his audience. So here we go. This man I've showed up with a plan. The same thing when people ask me, what's the most important thing that we can do to protect our environment? I've always said the same thing. It's free market capitalism. Always the said reason, the same thing. Mm -hmm. They ate it up. And we've cleaned up most of the large pollution sources in the river. But the fishermen are now virtually all out of business. But um, they didn't go out of business because their business model didn't work. The people I represent were capitalists. They believed in the capitalist system. And they knew that for 350 years, their business model was working. The reason it stopped working is because the General Electric Company had better lobbyists than they did in Albany. That company was able to get permission from, from the Department of Environmental Conservation and federal EPA to do something that was completely illegal, which was to dump its waste into the Hudson River. I was part of the original discussions where GE was threatening the governor. We have 60,000 jobs in New York State. And if you don't allow us to dump the PCBs into the river, we are going to move over to New Jersey. And we'll do it from that side of the river. And they'll get the jobs. And they'll get the tax revenue. And you're still going to get the PCBs. So New York went along with it. A decade later, General Electric closed those plants and moved all 60,000 workers out of New York State. And they left the people of the state with a $4.3 billion cleanup bill that nobody can pay. And everybody in the Hudson Valley has General Electric's PCBs and their flesh and their organs. And this fishery that had enriched the palate and the culture and the economy and the history of the Hudson Valley for three and a half centuries was closed down. And it was closed down because somebody got a subsidy, because General Electric got a subsidy that allowed it to evade the discipline of free market capitalism. And from the beginning, I've said that free markets are good for the true free markets, not what we have in this country, which is corporate crony capitalism. Uh, 
a true free market promotes efficiency, and efficiency means the elimination of waste, and pollution is waste. A true free market would encourage us and force us to properly value our natural resources. And it's the undervaluation of those resources that cause us to use them wastefully. In a true free market, you can't make yourself rich without making your neighbors rich and without enriching your community. But what polluters do is they make themselves rich by making everybody else poor. They raise standards of living for themselves by lowering quality of life for the rest of us. And they do that by escaping the discipline of the free market. You show me a polluter, I'll show you a subsidy. I'll show you a fat cat using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market and force the public to pay their production costs. Okay. Well, that's, uh, what did you think about that part of the speech, Charles? It's libertarian RFK right there. It was, it was kind of a libertarian RFK. Yeah. Um, a little bit. Now, one thing he was talking about in this, um, one thing he was talking about was that GE was able to do this because they got a subsidy or they were able to do it because they got they, a pass. They had better lobbyists. And I understand that it's wrong of GE to do this, but the incentive structure was there and you're not going to find any perfect human beings to run these corporations. And what they actually got was not just a pass to do it. They actually got a release from the legal liability of doing it because they got permission to do it from the government. And at the time that they did that, that meant that no one was going to be able to go after them for all of their damages. And if they would not have been able to to be released from all the liability, then the free market would have fixed this problem for them and made an example out of them. So other corporations did not do this in the future because it would be well known that if there was a $4.3 billion cleanup bill from what GE did and they got this lawsuit, well, there's precedent on this. People are going to go after us. Uh, all of these companies went the fisher the fisheries went out of business because the fish are too toxic to eat and all that, and we ended up having to pay for the whole ecosystem of this area that we polluted, and so no one else is going to do it after that again. Instead, what they got was a pass, not just to do it, but to not get in trouble for it. And for you, the government got, gave them got, a pass. They got immunity. They got immune an immunity yeah. deal from the government for hurting you, so the government could get the tax revenue. Anyway, his issue is he starts off really by blaming the corporation. And I get it. They're, they're easy to, to, to hate. They're easy to blame for things. But they're just human beings. And you tell them that they can save money by dumping stuff in the river instead of getting rid of it otherwise, and that they can't get in trouble for it. They're going to do it. What's the incentive structure? You can't rely on perfect moral angels being in control of everything. They're not in control of the government. They're not going to be in control of corporations. What matters are the incentive systems that are in place. But he's not wrong what he was saying, that, okay, if we had a true free market, a true free market, then a company like GE would actually get in trouble for something like this. I'm not talking trouble from the government. I'm talking trouble from the, the society at large, being that they would not put up with this kind of thing. And therefore, either there would be there would be lawsuits for harm that was caused by their pollution, and also people would probably stop using GE products and things along that nature, um, and they could vote in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So that's the other thing, which I couldn't find on the, you know, I couldn't get in video form. Do you remember when he went into talking about the pandemic? Mm-hmm. He started talking about how the wealth of whatever amount of billionaires increased. He also complained that we created a new billionaire every day during the pandemic. Okay. So you think about someone's underlying assumptions about wealth and what that means. You got to think it's inherently I'm sure bad. He's yeah, not doing bad. It's probably pretty poor. <laughs> I'm sure he hasn't benefited from uh, any inheritance or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure nothing like that. So he in, inherently has this problem uh, with wealth. First off, by framing it as a bad thing that we had all these new billionaires pop up during the pandemic. But he is talking about how the government gave people a bunch of money, a bunch of printed money. And so he is right in pointing that whole thing out. But then he says something that we don't have on video. So he says something later that Jeff Bezos shut down all of his competition. That's what he said. He said that in the speech. He Mm -hmm. said that Jeff Bezos shut down all of his other competition. Doesn't say it was the government. He's talking about how billionaires increased their wealth and Jeff Bezos was able to do it by shutting down his competition. At that point, we left. Yep. That was it for me. And people were still clapping. Yes. And and they're all wrapped around the finger. All um, because he hates some of the same people that they hate, and that's all they care about. Mm-hmm. That is it. Well, and he was able to spin some of his positions in a way to his audience, which mm-hmm. isn't true. Like, you listen to him on Rogan. This guy's not a free market capitalist. No. He doesn't believe. He doesn't actually believe in a true free market. His economic positions are terrible. He wants just as much government intervention as the next Democrat. Yeah, he does. It's like, you know, I think he's good on some things. I think he's willing to question some things. But when it comes to the things that actually matter, I think, my personal opinion, the things that are the most important, which is economics has to be up there. I mean, economics affects everything in your life. Everything. It decides like what quality of life you're going to have, whether or not you're going to have a life. It decides whether or not you can you can eat. Yeah. It decides whether or not you can eat or have access to water or shelter. Fundamental or things anything. in life. Yes. And so, and then he's able to twist that around and say, you know, I am for those things when he's very clearly not. Just like, just like Tulsi Gabbard. I love her on war and all kinds of things, but she's terrible when it comes to the economy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely atrocious. She went to the 95% windfall tax on corporations yes. during the pandemic. And so was RFK Jr. So you I, know what the windfall you know what? tax was, by the way? Shame to all those people clapping for him. Shame. <laughs> it it bothers me. It bothers me that so many people are okay with this because it means that they don't actually have any underlying principles. It means that they're mad about something and he's mad about something too. And as long as he says that he's going to punish people that you're also mad at, then that's all you care about. Mm-hmm. And that really bothers me because he's going to be confronted with a lot of others. Listen, he's not going to be the president, but it's the principle of the matter. He would be confronted with several other situations while he is the president and have the opportunity to sign several terrible bills and sev- several terrible budgets and push a lot of different policies and sign a lot of different executive orders. And if he starts from the standpoint of... uh Wealth creation is in, inherently bad, or it's always the corporation or the business person's fault. Those are, that's the productive side of the economy. I just don't know, ma'am. I just don't know. And it bothers me that so many libertarians and Republicans are cool 
you know, I've seen a lot of people say like, well, one thing wrong with Gary Johnson and I didn't vote for him. You know, a lot of people are like that or like a couple things wrong with uh, some concert Rand Paul or someone. But then you get someone like RFK who's got like one or two things right and everything else is wrong. Mm-hmm. And somehow they're cool with it. And it's just because it's a it's a populist movement. That's yeah. That's all it is. All right, folks, we'll be right back. One more segment, Liberty at Night. We're going to talk about how we can change things. We'll talk to someone who used to be a progressive, and now they are a libertarian. I don't even think libertarian describes them. Voluntarist, anarchist. I don't know what it is, but we're going to talk to Keith Knight when we come back. What's up, all of our liberty-loving friends? This is Liberty at Night with Nate and Chuck. I'm Nate and Charles. Chuck Thompson's right there. Hey. How's it going, man? Hey, going great. How's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. We are almost done. Uh, if you're listening tonight, well, this has been three hours worth of things so far. Okay, quite a bit. And we've talked about capitalism and whether or not we should hate billionaires or people have more than us, especially old people, because they typically have more than we do. They've you know? been around a lot longer. Yeah, they've had more time for their salaries to go up. You know, uh, We talked about how climate change, I think, is going to kill everyone. I'm pretty sure about that. <laughs> you know, uh, We might be starting another inflation wave pretty soon, so that's not good. With all these crazy, terrible, terrible things that we see out there, is there any hope, Charlie? Mm, maybe just a tiny sliver you know, you don't want to hold on to it, though. No. Because, you know, then you just set yourself up for disappointment. That's, that's what life is, man. Yeah. Don't care what, no, Ob- but there don't is, care what Obama says, right? There is hope. You yeah. know, and there's, there's ways that you can approach things in life. You know, you get to choose. That's the, that's the coolest thing, and that's how you take your power back. Like, things in life happen, or the world is heading a certain direction, but you get to choose how you respond to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the ultimate power of the individual still. Especially you taking the responsibility for the one that, that needs to respond to it. And um, whatever it is that even uh, could have gone wrong, like that's the power in taking responsibility in things, because then that means that you're the person that can change it. And uh, that's really how we approach all of the discussions on the show, you know? And you're the person that can change. Mm-hmm. You can't change anyone else. You really can't. You And like, you okay, you can change some systems and things like that eventually, maybe, but it really starts with you. Yeah. And you can be the change that you wish to see. That's a great quote. You should, yeah. Do you want to write that down? Maybe I read that in a book once. Yeah. Yeah. And put Charles Chuck Thompson down at the bottom of it. That's a good idea. Uh, So what do we talk about on, before we get to this interview with Keith Knight uh, from the uh, Libertarian Institute, uh, really great talk with him. He's a voluntarist, he used to be a progressive, uh, he used to be an Obama supporter, uh, and then he, uh, you know, turned out that he didn't like wars, and it wasn't just because he hated George Bush, and so he'll be, that means he also ended up not liking Obama at the same time. So an actual principal I mean, he loved guy, Obama to begin with. He did. Yeah. Yeah, and then he found out that it was just more war, and uh, so he didn't like that. And so this is, oh, Wait, what just happened? Oh, you... <laughs> solo. Solo. You went Chuck Solo right there. 
Sure did. And muted at the same time. You took control and prevented anyone else from doing anything, and then you ceased operations. <laughs> it starts with you. <laughs> at the same time. It starts with you. It's not the kind of control we're talking about. Okay, so to continue on, we're talking about Keith Knight. It was a really great talk we had over at Freedom Fest. Keith is one of those super knowledgeable guys, the kind of guy that uh, when he looks at something, he remembers it forever, and it's uh, it's not frustrating. I think it's amazing. I'm not frustrated about that gift that he has mm-hmm. at all. But so we do this show every day. Good morning, Liberty. And Charlie, what, what would you say we talk about the most? Uh, life, mm-hmm. liberty, and the pursuit of meaning. Why not happiness? Because happiness is fleeting. That comes a lot from, you know, Jordan Peterson. I think he's, you know, shined a, a good light on that because there are things in your life that are going to happen and you're for sure not going to be happy. Mm. So you have to have something else that's going to sustain you. You have to have some type of meaning and purpose. You have to have a why. You do. And without that, um, then what are you What are you fighting for? I mean, what? why do you want to see the world be a better place? That's why, you could, why people could give up, because they forget why they're fighting. Keith, how you doing? I'm doing very well, gentlemen. Thank you guys for having me. The Voluntarist Handbook? Yes, sir. So, so what's that all about? So these are the 50 essays that took me from being a progressive to being a voluntarist. I wanted to buy the copyrights for all of them and then make a free PDF available to anyone at libertarianinstitute.org. You see, the progressives will tell us we believe in free education and also we want to take 30% of your income every year to fund it and textbooks are $500. At the Institute, we really want to provide the free education progressives pretend to provide people. So what I do is I start the book out by just listing off the definitions of the word so we can at least be on the same page with people. So when they say capitalism is greed and profit-seeking, I don't know anything greedier than give me your property or we'll put you in a cage and shoot you if you resist. So greed is in no way unique to capitalism. As far as making profit, the state profits very heavily when it collects Mm -hmm. money coercively when – not to mention all the soldiers who make money, all the cops who make money. Teachers aren't unpaid volunteers. Again, we have profit-seeking. So if you think things like the free market or capitalism – Uh, that unique aspects of those things are greed or corruption or profit, you're not going to be able to see the situation clearly. So what I start off by doing is I define communism as the abolition of private property, as Karl Marx did, socialism as the institutionalized aggression against or interference with private property, and capitalism as a social system based on the explicit recognition of mutually beneficial voluntary contracts between private property owners. Once this consistent layout is given, then I have artic- uh, essays from 1850, going back to Frederick Bastiat, early 1900s, Auburn Herbert, who really founded the current uh, movement of voluntarism. And uh, we also have original articles by former Marines like Shane Hazel, who ran for governor in Georgia, and uh, Shepard the Voluntarist, who was a police officer in Montana or Wyoming, I believe. So, uh, yes, these are the essays that... Uh, I want people to check out. I have a collection of quotes in here from The Most Dangerous Superstition, Economics in One Lesson, Lysander Spooner's Constitution of No Authority. It's the one book that I want to give people to introduce them to our ideas and really make the case that it's not about big state, small state, that 
uh, or it's not even about the black versus white, man versus woman, fake divide that the media and politicians are always pushing. A true divide that we can have in society is people who achieve their ends peacefully through mutually beneficial voluntary exchanges and those who do so violently. Those should be the villains, not the rich or the whites or the men or any other fake thing. That's why I think the book is important. Milton Friedman said, it's always the other fella who's greedy. Never mm-hmm. us, right? Never us. <laughs> okay, no. so you mentioned something at the beginning of that, which is that these, this is a collection of essays you put together because you went from extreme progressivism to volunteerism. Walk me through that. Like, what Did this start out in college? Were you in high school? What kind of led you down this path to want to learn more? I was so young, I would go to Sedona to see my grandparents, and you can't appreciate the beauty of Sedona when you're like 12, and they were big advocates for uh, Barack Obama, and I had just seen that uh, the divide is between people who want to give us stuff for free, and then there's other people who don't care if you go without the stuff. So Obama's obviously a guy who's somewhat of an angel. He's able to provide things for free. No one else is able to do this. This man is literally Santa Claus. This is terrific. we got to get this guy in the White House quick. So once you have that fake divide, you assume the people who want others to go without, well, that's evil and greedy, and how could you not support this? So Obama gets elected. We're all very excited. And then I was thinking, how could you not support someone like this? Well, it's got to be... Obviously, because he's black. Turns out they were they hated Clinton and Joe Biden just as much. It never occurred to me to say, can I apply this criticism to the previous Democrat? I hadn't read Thomas Sowell yet. So um, I was like, uh, OK, this guy Glenn Beck, I guess, is like the lead Klansman who's really rallying all these people to hate a man who's just nice for a living. Mm-hmm. And Glenn Beck had an interesting objection to uh, the Affordable Care Act. He said, well, there's economic costs and benefits like there are in anything. But what this bill has is something called an individual mandate, which requires you by law to purchase something whether or not you actually want it. And at that point, I said, well, then I wouldn't support this law because people should have health insurance and people should read books and they should listen to Good Morning Liberty. The question is not should they. The question is should they be forced to. And that's when I did not uh, support the Affordable Care Act anymore. took me 10 years to apply that principle consistently and become like a voluntarist. But that was the defining moment that made me say, well, does this just apply to Barack Obama's health care law? It actually applies to Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security Mm -hmm. and compulsory education. It's like. When am I going to be willing to put someone in a cage and shoot them if they resist? Slavers, murderers, kidnappers, rapists, absolutely. People who don't chip in for a welfare state they think uh, has costs that exceed the benefits. I go, okay, well, maybe shame them. Maybe do a better job at making the welfare uh, system beneficial so people want to brag about funding it. But I wouldn't be willing to cage the person and shoot them if they resist. Once I started seeing things through that lens, I was just Ron Paul uh, all the way, and that's what uh, introduced me to guys like Stefan Molyneux and Larkin Rose and Carrie Wedler. Um, that was the origin of when I said, you know, I might be wrong about everything. Uh, that that was really it. Supporting Obama and the Affordable Care Act individual mandate. That right there, when you said, well, I might be wrong about everything. There are a few people who have the ability to even consider that as an option. I'm assuming that you're someone who's always been willing to question things, clearly, and you've always, you know, looked for the truth 
and uh, that, taking responsibility, having some introspection. Is that the case? Were you yeah. always like that? No. What no. happens? What happens is, is there are some places in life where you give yourself a really nice green light, and you say, "I'm totally open to being wrong about this." Usually at the expense of a lot of other things. I was a drug addict at the time, mm. and if I was really willing to question things and see things clearly and just care about the truth, I would have been able to see that objectively. We all have tons of blind spots, and that's why it's up to you know people like you guys to uh, show people. You know, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm saying you might have a blind spot. Doesn't mean you're a terrible driver, but in every car, there more or less is a blind spot where you just can't see. Same exact thing happens with the human brain. Another big red pill moment uh, that stood out to me was reading George Bush's speech from September 20th, 2001. Bush is talking to Congress, first time since the attacks, and he says, Americans are asking why do they hate us. They hate what they see in this chamber right here, a democratically elected government. Their leaders are self-appointed. They hate our freedom of religion and our freedom to disagree with each other and our freedom to vote, more or less. And I had just more or less believed that. And then I came across two books, uh, Al-Qaeda in its own words, published by Harvard University, and a book called Jihad, Interviews, Speeches, and Declarations by Osama bin Laden. And it turns out there is a much more reasonable explanation for why people are willing Mm. to die, just as after 9-11, Americans were willing to Mm. die in defense. Turns out that it was a response to uh, a murder campaign that took place in the late 90s under Bill Clinton in Iraq, just as we see the the states of America as different parts of our family. The Islamic world sees the different Islamic countries as extensions of their family. So bin Laden was able to recruit people by showing them the sanctions that killed Iraqis throughout the 90s after the first Gulf War, the bombings that killed innocent women and children. The occupation of the land of the two sanctuaries, known as Mecca and Medina, where they were uh, stationing the uh, troops to bomb. And just as Democrats flipped out over, there was Russian interference in the election. Of course, that was all fake. Imagine if Putin had troops stationed in America because Donald Trump told him to. Well, that would be such a huge interference. People would see it as a violation of independence and be willing to go to war over it. And then the third reason was that the power of the Israeli regime and the Israeli defense forces um, committed a number of atrocities against uh, Palestinians, especially the Kana massacre in Lebanon of 1996, which is what uh, got people like Mohammed Atta to uh, sign up to be a Mujahideen fighter. So it was actually reading the words and saying, you know, it turns out that as bad as, you know, th- as bad as these atrocities are, it's not it does not uh, happen as a result of too much libertarianism. And we just sat back and this happened to us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Turns out the opposite. This is referred to as blowback terrorism. Another case is July 12th of 2016. A man named Omar Mateen murdered 49 people in the Orlando Pulse nightclub, injured 53 and held the survivors hostage and called 911 himself. Barack Obama and Donald Trump came out and said, this was an attack against LGBT Americans. Radical Islam is terrible. What he said is, America's killing women and children in Iraq and Syria. You have to stop the bombing. Stop collaborating with Russia. This is how we feel. Now you feel how it is. His statements couldn't have been more clear. No hatred of homosexuals was evident. And they still lied about it again. So this is a decades-long lie. And when you see such blatant examples of, there's no innocent explanation for either of these things. Um, that's what really humbled me to the point where I'm like, all right, I can't come up with any more rationalization, so I'll just look <laughs> humble and say, 
All right, I've been wrong. I hope to be right in the future. Thanks for everything. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to go back to you said that during Obamacare, you were listening to Glenn Beck. Now, you, were you listening to him to refute or listening to him because someone else had it on? Like, how did you come about Glenn Beck talking about his objection to uh, the Affordable Care Act? It was pure curiosity of how could it, it would make sense if there were like five Republicans on the whole planet. But the fact that there's like tens of millions in this country that just don't care if people die. <laughs> how does this work? This yeah. makes no sense. I have to at least hear them out. So if you want to conquer something, you have to first understand it more or less. Um, it, I just could not believe what is it that he's saying? Well, it turns out that just giving the state a monopoly on education doesn't make everyone educated. You don't get universal smartness from state education. <laughs> the state coercively funds and monopolizes the court system. You don't have universal free justice. But for some reason, I thought they could do that with health care. Again, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, hey, uh, there's nothing to be sorry about. We came from the op- other side. I mean, we were, I would say, hardcore conservatives who thought Obama was a terrorist, by the way. Um, oh, well, you're right anti- about that. And the Antichrist. <laughs> well, just not that. He is a, a terrorist in a Yemen, kind of Afghanistan, yes, Iraq, Syria. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being excited when we first bombed Iraq, like in 2003. We, we, is that when it was, right? When yeah. we well, there had been about okay, well, sorry, uh, 12 sorry. years of bombings first, before that. Okay, in, in, in my history, watching it on TV in school, uh, we watched that, and I was excited about it. And I was excited about that for probably 10 years before I started to question that. It's probably because I was finding some Ron Paul videos on YouTube something like that. And so people can change. That's an important thing for people to remember because today when you look uh, on social media, you see a lot of people who are ingrained in their point of view. And it's good for all of us to realize that we were hardcore right wing, bomb them into submission so they can have democracy. Turn the sand in the glass. <laughs> that, that kind of yeah. thing. And then we Take have a, awful. Yeah. Awful then we have a stuff. progressive and now we all probably agree that something like volunteerism is the best way. And I was going to have you tell us uh, why volunteerism uh, would be better because Republicans, you know, people would say, well, they don't care about people. They just want them to die. OK, well, how would this society be better? And then I want to add my own thing. It's not that it's better is the reason that I support it. It's because it's the only moral system. That's why I support it. If we could make the argument that uh, enslaving people would make people more prosperous, I wouldn't do it because it wouldn't be moral. So uh, why is volunteerism the best way to do it? Yes, the people constantly (laughs) advocating the murder of civilians are terrified that we don't care about people. Okay, but I'm going to pretend that they don't believe that and try to give a straight answer. The reason volunteerism is better, and that's the key word, because for some reason I guess people hear perfect when we say better Mm -hmm. and they go, well, what about this shortcoming? The problem is all of the shortcomings that can occur under volunteerism greed, fraud, murder, kidnapping, those can also exist under uh, a state regime. The reason volunteerism is better is it doesn't have the double standard, the moral double standard, which says theft isn't theft if you call it taxation, murder's not murder if you call it war, violently dominating people isn't terrible if you call it regulation or vote on it first. But secondly, volunteerism uh, allows for the ultimate check and balance in society, which all governments, by definition, necessarily neglect, which is the freedom to disassociate with bad actors. You want to give people the incentives and say, I wish you'd do better. I wish you'd provide better security. I wish you'd provide a more just justice system. But at some point, you have to be willing to withdraw monetary uh, support as well as the support of your time and attention. (coughs) 
Governments necessarily rule those things out. So voluntarism is not only the most moral system, but it provides you with more economic opportunities than you otherwise have and provides the proper incentives for providers of justice and security. Just as they'll always tell us, it's really bad if there's a monopoly in microphones because you'd have higher prices and worse quality than you otherwise would. Also, the state should monopolize compulsory education and monopolize guns and monopolize the court system. The same shortcomings apply, but they apply more so because they don't even have that uh, opt-out-of-funding-them option that uh, voluntarism does. Those are the main issues. And even when it comes to something like security, we had a terrible breach at work where uh, an engineering company had a ton of ransomware. All of their property was stolen and encrypted, and they didn't know what to do. None of them are voluntarists, but none of them said, we need to call 911, we need to call the FBI, we need to call the CIA. For the violation of their most valuable private property, they went to uh, private security, Google, who backed up their stuff, private security at PayPal, and a uh, private uh, antivirus organization called Sentinel One. We see private security all around us. When we go to shopping malls, when we go to sporting events, when I was at the Slipknot concert, (laughs) this is where there's a lot of danger in a very narrow area. (laughs) You'd think if there's any time we need a state, it's there. Uh, It turns out uh, that it's actually in their incentive to uh, provide a safe environment for customers to be so they can get investors to invest and they could get bands to be there in return. We see private security all around us. It's always going to exist because there is consumer demand for having things safe and secure, your body, your time, your property. So that's why voluntarism is more moral, and that's why it's more uh, economically desirable uh, to, in all aspects of life. Um, real quick, I know you have a podcast also. You said don't tread on anyone, yes. right? Okay, could you tell everyone about that that's listening? This is a uh, podcast that I started because I felt that my time was rather disrespected in school. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times I heard about Pythagoras's theorem, but it seems very unproductive. <laughs> and what I wanted to do was provide a place where people can go to my Odyssey page or YouTube or Spotify, click on anything and start learning immediately. Some of the videos I did one the other day called the gender death gap in hopes of refuting a number of social justice uh, assumptions about the world. Uh, Some are two minutes. Others, I have one called The Ultimate Red Pill, which is five hours and 15 minutes. So I only put stuff... That's a book. That's not a podcast. Yeah, Yeah, really. I know. If someone wants to make a transcript of that, we uh, don't believe in IP, so take it away. I would appreciate it. Um, uh, The whole thing is to give people a place where anyone can click and start learning about history, economics, agriculture. This is also the goal of the Libertarian Institute and why Scott Horton was kind enough to bring me on board, because we want people to be able to go to this place and type in Winston Churchill, Ukraine, agricultural subsidies, and get the freedom position, uh, because we have centuries uh, that uh, many people have not uh, been introduced to, centuries of thought that are uh, really vitally important, uh, especially at a time like this. It turns out people like Pat Buchanan in 1999, he wrote a book titled A Republic, Not an Empire, where he said the most dangerous thing would be expanding NATO up to Russia's border. This could potentially provoke a third world war with a country who we just avoided a huge potential nuclear conflict with. The Mm. Soviets finally fell because that stupid empire got bogged down in an unwinnable war in Afghanistan in the Mm -hmm. late 70s. What empire would fall for such a thing? Those stupid Soviets in Afghanistan. I can't believe it. So once you uh, get introduced to that thing, the work of Scott Horton, John J. Mearsheimer, and Pat Buchanan, you see 
there is no innocent explanation for these conflicts that, uh, that that we're getting into now. You see Lindsey Graham in 2017 going to the, uh, the fighters in Ukraine to say, 2017 will be the year of offense. We're going to Washington to make the case against Russia. Enough of Russian aggression. It's time for them to pay a heavier price. These people are constantly provoking the world wars, even though the right says, thou shall not murder is the center of my religion. They support people who are responsible for more mass murder than anyone else. The left will say, we believe in anti-greed and we believe in equality and dignity. The mass murder campaigns that the warfare states have given us make them the most likely to commit the very thing that they say that they're terrified of occurring. Yes, low wages are bad. Murdering those people is far worse. So we want to make this education free for basically anyone. Check it out at libertarianinstitute.org, where you can also find uh, my podcast, the Don't Tread on Anyone podcast. I was about to ask you that, uh, you know, I'm converted. You converted me right now (laughs) and where to sign up. And you knew exactly that it was time to give the URL. So thank you. Thank you, Keith. I mean, I just I feel like I just learned so many things just then. You remember so many things that I would need to read off of a sheet of paper, clearly. And I just wanted to commend you on that. And I'm jealous also. Just so you know. Okay, I want to know how, but I know you were born with it and I can't learn it. So anyway, sorry, I will talk about this later on. Anyway. It was great meeting you, Keith. Yeah, Pleasure really, to meet you guys. Really Thank you so much for having so much. me. Yeah. Thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight on Liberty at Night. Charlie, did you have a good time? I had a great time. I had an amazing time, too. The interview with Keith was great. We had Spike Cohen. We had Steve Forbes earlier on. Okay, pretty cool stuff. Every Tuesday night, you got Liberty at Night with Nate and Chuck on the Free Talk Live network. We'll see you soon. If you want to move to the free state and you're looking for some real estate, well, I know a guy who's really great. It's the Realtor Mark Warden. Now you can learn more about the awesome things happening here in New Hampshire in our march toward liberty in our lifetime. Our friends at Porcupine Real Estate are hosting a series of webinars to educate you on the expanded freedoms enjoyed by New Hampshire citizens. Reserve your seat today at move.freetalklive.com. Topics include gun freedom, medical freedom, and political freedom victories. They also have a couple on best practices for moving to the free state and finding housing. These webinars are super helpful and free to attend once you've registered at move.freetalklive.com. Visit their YouTube channel, Porcupine Real Estate, for videos from past presentations and sign up for upcoming webinars for free at move.freetalklive.com. Porcupineralestate.com